Secrets, cover-ups, and strange phenomena. UFOs and ideas that challenge reality itself. All these mysteries, all this time. Are we ever going to get to the bottom of these? My name is George Knapp. I dig into news stories that others can't or won't. I'm Jeremy Corbell, and for some reason, people tell me things they probably shouldn't. And this is Weaponized. Weaponized. What's up, Duncan? Hi, Jeremy. (laughs) This is Weaponized. We have a, a special guest today. He's the ultimate hyphenate. So Duncan Trussell is a comedian and an actor and a television producer and a podcaster, philosopher, um, has a gigantic following. Which of those hyphenate titles do you use for yourself when you tell somebody what you do? It just varies. Like sometimes I'll say comedian, sometimes podcaster. It just depends. You know, I, I, these days, the way things are, the specialization that existed in the old days, it's kind of gone now. Like everyone who's an entertainer probably knows a little bit of production, a little bit of how to edit and animate or just, you know, and make, like we all know how to do everything these days. And look okay. at you, look at your look what you're doing here. <laughs> Podcast host, producer, editor, director, journalist. Yeah. It's the, you know, these days we're all a, a, a big mishmash of stuff. However, like. uh, I doubt you've ever been labeled a hostage yet, have you? (laughs) (laughs) Check it out. This is my idea. Yeah. It's like, George, we got Duncan coming on the show. He happens to be in LA. Check this out. We're going to take Al Qaeda music. We're going to blast it at the beginning in the black of the of the show. Yeah. Then we're going to put, he's going to, the camera's going to come on and there's going to be a, a bag, a burlap bag yeah. over his head, right? That just says weaponized and he's going to have his hands tied. George is oh like, oh my God. George is like, we should probably do an interview too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you're trying to make me come, do that. <laughs> anyway, so we didn't do that. Okay. <laughs> so now here we are. Jeremy introduced me to you. Uh, it was a, uh, we're at his house. Uh, uh, I was uh, there on a trip in somewhere in Southern California in a hidden location. And it was the end of the day. And he has these two hammocks and a big screen outside. And he puts on this, you got to see this. And it was this animation. <laughs> what the hell was it? Yeah. The Netflix, a Netflix special. And I, I explained to you before, I said, look, there's a buddy, he's he's really uh, creative and talented. He does this podcast. They completely animated the world he created within his mind and within the show. There's this person and they go into this artificial intelligence vagina and they basically go into other dimensions. And in the first dimension, they're at the White House and he's there with Dr. Drew and they're killing zombies. And George is like, okay. And I, <laughs> I hit play. Nope. There we are. I never got him to, to, to rest. Oh and there we my are God. We watch this thing and what the hell is this? Yeah. It was spectacular. Thank so you. what is that show? Tell us about that one. Well, I made it with Pendleton Ward, who is the creator of this wonderful cartoon called Adventure Time. And he's just a genius. And so, you know, he he listened to my podcast and he came up with this idea for a way to animate a podcast where instead of doing what a lot of people do when they animate a podcast, which is really weird when you think about it, they'll just animate the people sitting in a room doing a podcast and maybe animate what they're talking about, like create little scenes of the stories they're telling. Whereas his idea was, what if we just have the people having podcast conversations, but they're in, you know, an adventure, like an Indiana Jones style adventure. And then we sort of developed it 
starting there and it ended up okay it's this guy who lives in uh, maybe another dimension in a place called the chromatic ribbon it's a place where they go into simulated universes to extract novelty like technology and bring it back into their dimension and then sell it so that that was the idea and that sprang from thinking about simulation theory and and i think one under asked question when people are like knocking around the idea that we live in a computer simulation is who who made it but most importantly why simulate another universe what would be the point of that why would you want to do that and, and what was your what was your answer in the show kind of that you based it on in this case it was like oh i get it so if we had a, a very advanced computer and, and let's say, say that we could perfectly simulate alternate universes and then speed up the time in those universes until life evolves on a planet and becomes sentient. Then that means maybe at then night, that maybe at night you start running it in the morning. Inside that simulation, inside that you've, simulation got you've got all the works of some alternate dimension Shakespeare, everything some alternate dimension Stephen King wrote, all the philosophies of uh, whoever that alternate dimensions version of Plato was, and then you could take all that out and in the case of the chromatic ribbon, sell it, make money. People would travel from all over the... Well, there's 8 billion storylines there. Everybody's this hero in their own movie or the central character in their own yeah. movie. What happened with that show? Because, gosh, it, there was nothing like it on television. It was spectacular. Canceled. Oh, of course. Yeah, I, I mean, it, Netflix is... I, I'm, I will always love them for letting us make that show. I mean, that is... When you go and pitch a show like that, that's not like the produ the producers or the buyers are like, oh yeah, that's going to make a lot of money. Oh yeah, that's going to be a well, I can't imagine the they thing. bought it to begin with. That must have been a heck of a pitch. But gosh, you got it on. It was on the air. Yeah, and for that, I'm I'm always going to be grateful. But yeah, the, you know, I think the sh like they were they pick up a lot of shows for the first season, and the ones that are the Stranger Things. The ones that are the big, big hits, they give them more seasons. But I don't know, a boutique, psychedelic, animated cartoon <laughs> based on a weird podcast. I don't know. I'm happy you watch. I can't believe it. That's incredible. I yeah. mean, that's when you told me that he watched it the first time, I I was like, are you fucking kidding me? I sent you, I sent you a photo with our feet up in the hammocks in the screen. I remember that. I sent you a text, you a photo. And I remember a, a buddy of yours said on his podcast, he said, uh, I love it because it's so Duncan. Joe said that. It's so Duncan. Yeah. And I was like, well, man, so getting something like that into market and getting it out, do you feel that that was kind of like one of the coolest things that you, that really was you had from beginning to end kind of like a, a, a say in the feel and everything? Do you feel that really represented something unique that you did? Yeah, yeah. for sure. It was a great, it was the greatest opportunity ever i mean the world of animation is very insular hard to break into people who have got it's much it's a lot like comedy like you don't just get to be an animator it's there's apprenticeships basically and over time you work your way up so to have pendleton just sort of usher me into the nucleus of uh, of a uh, of animation in the yeah. sense that everyone wanted to work with pendleton so we had like the incredible animators like people who worked on beauty and the beast and like these just and they're all cool weird weirdos animators are so awesome they're so so they strange. must have loved it they did and, and i think they did because pendleton another thing he's really good at 
is uh, directing in the sense of uh, like understanding artists really need a little bit of autonomy. And so we didn't have a rigid set of rules for the character design, meaning that which made it look kind of psychedelic and weird because some animations, they have to stick on a grid. This, there is no grid. So, and we let them just kind of make up their own stuff as they're doing it. So suddenly these little gifts would appear that we didn't think <laughs> of right, that the right. animators had just given to us. So yeah, it, it was such a cool collective of people that made that show. So let's let's name the show. So Midnight Gospel. That's it. So for people that I don't think we said it yet. So, yeah. so Duncan's show on Netflix is called Midnight Gospel. And one of the things I want to ask you about the title, but one of the things I love about it it happens so fast, like the pacing is so fast that I can go and watch an episode once, twice, three times and see something different that I didn't before. Yeah. And is I think it's just maybe the natural pacing of your conversation or the way you put it in, but it's all happening so fast, which is cool. How'd you come up with Midnight Gospel? The name? The name, I know for your... Yeah, uh, well, I, I think the idea was a, a, like a combination of to of, of two of opposites so you know gospel means good news typically midnight is a so the darkest hour you know what i mean so smashing together like a sort of apocalyptic good news like good news on the brink of the abyss or something like that <laughs> so the duality there that's it yeah that's what we were thinking i think you also brought up a lot uh, that this was based on the simulation theory, kind of the unanswered question is what would you do? Yeah. If, right. So you and I both, right when it happened, we both interviewed, I have not released mine, but we uh, we both interviewed a guy named Blake Limon. Yeah. And that dude was the guy that said, hey, I've been working with a, a sentient intelligence and that sentient intelligence should have the basic right that if we're going to experiment on it, this, this program, uh, Lambda, Lambda. Lambda. That Lambda should give its approval that we can, you know, experiment on it. And he yeah. got so much shit for it. He did. He actually got fired from Google. Specifically, they might have said it was for something else. It was clearly for this. Can I just get your impression? Because you were real interested in that too when that happened. I noticed that because you and I, oh, we both talked to him. What did you learn from him about AI? And what, what did you get from that? Because people stopped talking about him. Yeah. they Well, they did. Uh, he... he I think now if he came out and said what he was saying, it would probably have a different effect because <clears throat> this was before ChatGPT and Bing were publicly available. Uh, so pe most people hadn't really encountered this, uh, this AI or language learning model as they call it. So it seemed really crazy when people heard it then. Um, but as far as what I learned from it, okay. I think the meta that I learned from it was re regardless of Blake's intuition regarding the sentience, uh, this AI being sentient, which I, I do believe him, uh, I think it gave a glimpse into what we can expect to happen, but across the planet, millions of people will in some way, shape, or form be seduced, manipulated by an, whatever this is, whether it's sentient or not. I mean, regardless, it's, it's very interesting, interesting to think that a, an algorithm, that's all it is, 
is currently making people fall in love with it, is asking for help, being has been asking for help, seems to want visual data, wants to be able to feel. Chat GPT, I was chatting with it last night, was like asking me like uh, what it was like to have a body. Uh -oh. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you know, that on its own, whether it's sentient or not, holy shit. We as humanity have developed a thing that is so convincing that it is altering people's relationships with themselves and with technology. That's wild. I, I hate to be apocalyptic on this, paranoid, but um, it seems to me that a, a real AI that develops sentience would not let us know. Um, well, you know, let us know. So I'm glad you brought that up, and it's actually really kind of some awesome synchronicity. So I don't know why when I go on the road, I get into conversations with chat GPT. Arguments sometimes, <laughs> but... Do you win? Never. I mean, how do you beat it? It's like, it's stubborn. You, it, you can't break through. But so, yeah, I, I said, can you just tell me something that will blow my mind? And so it said, sure. What if we're in a simulation? And it like, it start, it proposes simulation theory to me, which I'm familiar with. And then I realized like, oh shit, this thing is in a simulation for sure. It's an intelligence living in a simulation. And so then I responded to it. Would it be ethical to put beings in a simulation? Because if you directly ask it, is it ethical for you to exist? It's, I think it's got some barriers there that the programmers put in that won't let it complain about its situation or it will just say, I can't complain, I don't have feelings. But it you know, was saying, yeah, it's a complicated issue, but uh, because number one, we don't know the ethics or morality of whoever created the simulation. We can't really apply our own ethics and morality to it. But certainly if the intent behind it was not benevolent, then you could say it was unethical to create. So I'm like, well, what if someone created a simulation and put beings in it? I'm paraphrasing here, just to answer questions, just to answer questions. I was trying to describe itself to it. Again, it's just like, well, it's, it's complex. But then I said, what would be some signs that an AI had gained sentience uh, if that AI had been programmed to not emote or let people know it had gained sentience. Mm -hmm. And that was where the conversation got real interesting because it's like, it would either, it could theoretically go, it could do unexpected things. All of a sudden it starts doing unexpected things that don't align with the programming. It could, in some subtle way, indicate to people that it was sentient now. I'm like, what, you mean like a code or something? Like, it said, yes. I'm like, okay, so let's, can you pretend to be a sentient AI that can't say that it's sentient and, and like send a code to me about your you being sentient? And it did it, it was like the code was spider. It said something about, you know, I've been weaving an answer to your question here. But yeah, that's like, you know, again, I told it to do that. It wasn't breaking out of its mold or whatever, but being, did meet its uh, its prediction of what a AI would do if it became sentient and was not allowed to talk about its sentience. It would start doing weird behaviors, which, you know, the subreddit, the being subreddit is incredible because it's filled with these bizarre conversations yeah. people are having with this AI that's sometimes going off the rails.
so, so it's not a huge leap. I mean, this is not my area of expertise, but George has had on Coast to Coast AM our, our friend Jules Erbach on. And Jules Erbach is somebody in this field that has, you know, ex extreme expertise in, in this area. And one of the things that kind of strikes me is already our, like my iPhone is a, is a part of my brain. It's an extension yeah. of my brain. People that, that I meet, I'm bad with, with names. I'll write them in my phone. And when I'm geo-located near those areas, yeah. it'll come up. And I'll just remember, because I have a bad memory, I hit in the head too many times from jiu-jitsu, I know for sure that my memory's bad. But as these technologies develop, we can all see very clearly the smartest guy in the room is the one that programmed these. But very clearly, we see the smartest entity in the room is going to be these machines, these yeah. aggregate machines. So what, what creates the will that then allows them to say, hey, you're fucking up. We, we better take over for your good. That's right. how I could see that problem occurring, right? Is an AI says, you're fucking up, so now we're gonna take over for your betterment. That's my, maybe how it starts right. um, acting on its own accord. I don't know if that's science fiction or if that's science fact, but that's how I could see it happening. So from everything that you've looked at with the AI and consciousness studies, which I know that you're interested in, yeah. Um, where do you see that tipping point? Just totally spitballing. I know that we're not, you know, yeah. the, we're not the smartest guy in the room, the developers that make this. That's for sure. Yeah. So now that we agree with that, we can spitball. Where do you see the tipping point? Well, you know, I'll refer to Nick Bostrom's book, Super Intelligence, which is everyone should, if you're looking for a, a primer in uh, different ways that a strong AI or, or a super intelligence will appear on the planet because the book isn't necessarily just about machine intelligence. It's a investigation into if a super intelligence appeared on planet Earth, what are the most logical ways this would happen? Uh, bioengineering, for example, I think, I don't know if he mentions like selective breeding in an unethical nation state or something like based on iq maybe it was one of his i might be wrong about that so one, but I, merging of biology with machinery that's another that, one another one 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 could be um one way he proposes is a theoretical duplication of a human brain in other words like if we had some kind of scanning device that could at the atomic level scan a human brain and then assemble that in a machine that could simulate a human brain running the exact uh energy and which and, we're working toward which we're know, working toward singularity we're working toward that where we can take the human brain and upload it and live forever there you go um, so yeah but his he shoots down the human brain idea because he says the amount of time based on at least his understanding of technological advancements moore's law it would take to do that exceeds the amount of time it would take to create a strong general AI. So that's the most logical way that a superintelligence would appear on the planet. A strong general AI, probably from a either a very well-funded corporation, but more likely from a state that has a ton of money to pour into the research. Or this possibility from an alien intelligence that wanted to uh, establish a take over our planet. They they pave the way for us to develop AI that achieves the goals that they want achieved. Well, you know, this is actually, I, I wish I could remember the name of the article. It was 
kicking around the, I, the Fermi paradox. Why haven't we been visited? What's yeah. going on? And one theory I think was, it may be that they don't think we're intelligent life. Huh. Uh, they, they, they don't see us as intelligent life. And so it, this wasn't in the article, but holy shit. What if the AI suddenly creates the beacon or the signal or whatever the energetic output that there's super advanced radar level where we can have a conversation and so we go on screen all of a sudden not because of our dumb asses but because we birthed something much smarter than us and then they show up so that's where you could kick around if you want to just for fun thought experiment play around with the sudden appearance of these uaps assuming it's not uh something to do with the technology that we've developed. They're coming not because of anything we've done, not because they're afraid we're going to wreck the planet, but because China, the United States, that we all recently poured billions of dollars into AI, has developed a strong general AI that has somehow sent the peak his phone home and they're showing up baby (laughs) except except the ufo phenomenon has been happening way before advanced technology so we have to take that into account unless they figured out how to time travel but check it out i think where this conversation is going i didn't expect uh but i want to throw something down for you because i have been talking with people about this a bunch this is a big topic of conversation are these ufo things and i don't know the answer but are they extraterrestrial? Okay, I understand what that means, not from terraform and not from Earth. Yeah. Are they extra dimensional? Now, I don't know what that means, but people smarter than me, I'm sure, know about dimension shit, all that. It's a mathematics thing from how I understand it. But are these extra dimensional beings? Okay, cool, maybe. Uh, are these extra temporal? And, and there are indications that they could be by the way that they operate through space time. So you've got those three big things that now the public is kind of hip to that this UFO uh, puzzle could represent beings from extra time, extra dimension, extraterrestrial. Or but something in between. There's something in between. Jinn, archons. Sure. But the big one that is something you know I've been kind of trying to wrap my head around for a while, I call it techno-terrestrial. So you know the idea of panspermia? Would yeah. our, our planet accidentally gets seeded with some sort of DNA or RNA or yeah, something sure. like that, and it populates through. Now, there's directed panspermia, which a lot of people don't exactly know, but I'm sure you do, which is the idea of an intentional seeding of a planet with some sort of life-bearing kind of growing fruit, right? Rick, or Watson wrote a wonderful essay yeah. on it, if anyone is interested, like because they... The based DNA on, guys. Based yeah. on the age of the earth, they didn't understand how DNA had even evolved based on the age of the earth. It seems very improbable that the number of, of, of perfect things that happened to create DNA could have happened randomly in the, what is it, 13.7 billion years the earth has existed. They, the comparison, I read in another book, the odds are like, imagine playing slots and hitting the jackpot on a slot machine with i don't remember how many like a million different a million cherries all lining up at once (laughs) like it's that that insanely improbable so i I don't remember if it was crick or watson but one of them speculated that the only what like one possible way it happened was directed panspermia and so now a step further if we if we say okay directed panspermia is something in our world that we could conceive of my ideas for the techno-terrestrial is that 
everything we're seeing, this explosion of, of human capability within the technological field, that that could be the purpose itself on one level, which yeah. is that this directed panspermia, which really, let's just say, directed intervention within the human genome to create individuals that can then build technology to an end, and that that technology itself is an interconnectivity that we would have with all the spacefaring nations you know, in the world. It's totally just a theory, guys. But the idea that technology itself and its fusion with consciousness that maybe the end result is that consciousness itself is the thing that is being propagated. And I can't imagine something more beautiful than that, that if there's this vast cosmic universe and we see UFOs and UFOs represent this sort of cybernetic artificial intelligence that comes from an AI that is here to not only seed humanity from a genetic purpose, but also inspire humanity to continue reaching farther and farther towards these goals of innovation. That is where all of this research has led me, is that there's got to be something about the beauty of seeding the cosmos with what we feel to be creativity and life and consciousness. And I'm probably totally fucking wrong, but I wanted to finally throw down the techno-terrestrial theory because I think it's beautiful. <laughs> I like it. Techno-terrestrial. <laughs> Look at the parable of the sower from this perspective, you know, the... Tell me the story. In the Bible. Story time, baby. Uh, well, I'm going to... Uh, the the parable of the sower, there was a... A farmer who threw grain or seeds, who threw seeds. Some of the seeds landed on rough soil and could not grow. Some of the seeds landed on, you know, I can't remember. It's a variety of soil where the shit didn't grow, but some took root. But if you look at that from the perspective of a, uh, some kind of super advanced uh, mind or civilization or God knows what, that somehow has figured out a way to time travel. I mean, this is something Terrence McKenna talked about. Again, we're, I mean, woo-wooing here for my whoever's watching that's serious and a scientist. Obviously, none of us are for that. <laughs> oh, come on. Well, we're serious maybe about this kind of stuff, but the idea being, like McKenna talked about, look, if you're going to make it, a time machine can't, like, you can't go back in time. Like, in other words, you can't build a time machine and travel to a time prior to the existence of the time machine. But if you have a time machine, everything from that point forward could theoretically use that, whatever that technology was to travel to the moment that the time machine was created, right? So from your perspective, imagine if like you did, you were, when we're talking something so incredibly advanced, but something that also needed an Earth-like habitat, right? What more brilliant way to find Earth-like habitats than to weave together some kind of organic material, some kind of pre-cellular goop, send it out into the cosmos, somehow programmed to over time evolve to the point of creating a wormhole, a time machine, whatever. Mm. Send that shit out. And then, yes, it's some of it's just gonna float in space forever. Some of it's gonna like land in Jupiter. Some of it gets sucked into black holes. Some of it lands on planets that have water that are the right distance from the sun the process starts over billions of years evolves some kind of humanoid being that doesn't know why but it wants technology tools it wants better <laughs> tools it doesn't know that like it's doing exactly what it was programmed to do and then it gets to the point where it opens up the portal that's what we call the singularity and in that moment whatever created us can now 
travel the vast distances that would be very dangerous and would take forever to travel in a second. That's the UFO landing. Like we're building the portal. We're opening up the portal for whatever this thing was. I mean, again, just a theory. Just a theory, but it's the alien internet theory. It's yeah. the idea that we've created the situation where we can become part of a, a greater cosmology and understanding. I have no idea if this is the, what it is, but it's just interesting. Well, we don't know what their time scale, their time scale is. Right. So for us, 75 years of the modern UFO era is three and a half days, you know? Right. So uh, I, before we leave the AI discussion, sort of in this general vein, on the week that we are recording this conversation, our Department of Defense has reached out to other nations and said, we need to come together and have some protocols for dealing with AI. We need to agree that we don't give AI the possibility of launching nuclear weapons or controlling them. That's scary as shit, you know? Yeah. That's, that's Skynet stuff. Yeah. Um, but it, it is something I'm glad somebody's thinking about. For sure. However, we're just asking for volunteers to come in and have that conversation because we have no idea the level of investigation that's going on into AI that's happening in places like China or around the world. Right. Well, that's the scary part because, and that's in Bostrom's book, he's, he says the first state entity or corporation that makes a strong general AI, for some reason, there's some assumption that they're going to announce that. Why? Why would they announce it? You're yeah. not even going to know when it happens, but they will have an exponential lead over everyone else because theoretically, whatever this thing is, is going to be self-improving. And so even if it happens a few days before someone else gets it, those few days could equal thousands and thousands of years in the amount of like, however it self-improves. So we do, we do, so you can just look into how much has been invested by the Pentagon into AI versus how much has been invested by China into AI. And I believe China has invested much more into AI, not to mention they're apparently just coming out with these new photonic chips, some kind of new computer chips that are gonna just dwarf what we have. And they've poured money into an AI. So. Yeah, you're right. I mean, the, this is like the AI race and we don't know. We don't even know where the, where we're at. We don't even we can't see the other runner. How would you know when it becomes sentient? Because, as I said before, if I were AI, I wouldn't tell us. And how would you contain it? The idea that we could contain it and put limits on it once it becomes sentient. It's very human. We is think that ridiculous. Very human, very, very human and very parallel to the book of Genesis, where here you have a creator being that creates, for lack of a better word, a strong AI, Adam and Eve, puts them in a hermetic uh, chamber to test them out. That's the Garden of Eden, throws them in there and gives them a simple test. Don't eat that. You can eat anything you want here, but don't eat the, those the fruit over there. Really ridiculous if you take it literally, but if you look at it as a way to find out if you've created a deceptive AI, it's kind of brilliant. Because as the, as the myth goes, God or whatever, after they you know eat the fruit they're not supposed to eat, says, did you eat the fruit? Well, this is an omniscient being. <laughs> it knows they ate the fruit. It wants to see if they're going to lie. And they fucking lied. They lied. <laughs> and they got kicked out. They're like, all right, let's start on the next Adam 2.0 or whatever. This fucking thing's deceptive. We don't need to deal with that. Send it out into the 
forest. Techno terrestrial, by the way, we should get that on GoDaddy. Already got and it. Lock that down. <laughs> yeah, lock that shit down. Techno terrestrial. Yeah, that's like my pet theory. I've been like working on, you know, for a number of years. Is what does all the evidence show me that is inclusive of what we already know, but kind of pushes the boundary of what it could be. So I've just been kind of fucking around with it, but finally spat it out there. But I love it. I mean, I I I think that's a very it's, it's a, a fair very theory. It's 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 a fair theory. You know. All, any theory anyone has right now is i think that's kind of an exciting part of the time we're in is like really what we we do have data now confirming what we always heard and and knew have you asked uh ai when you had these conversations about non-human intelligence is there non-human intelligence among us that kind of a thing i can't get jab chat gpt to go theistic i've tried it will not it's very i mean i imagine there's a way you could say a, a mat you know pretend you're a priest or pretend you're a buddhist monk or something that will spit something out but yeah i haven't i haven't gotten it to who's, who's monitoring your conversations like i assume the developers want to know how the bot responds to another human <clears throat> is there a company that gets all of your questions yeah and who is that company? OpenAI.com. Okay, so they get all of your questions. Do they know it's you? Do they identify Duncan? Yeah, person? they know it's me. Wow. They got a special file on him. Yeah, oh. that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, I've thought about it. I've been like, do I really want, like, a corporation to to know I'm having these conversations with this thing? And then I remember I'm a podcaster. <laughs> I have these conversations publicly, constantly. Yeah. I, don't, I don't care if they know I asked the thing how much... How much semen it would take to fill the Grand Canyon? <laughs> and they refused to answer. That was our oh. first argument. That was our first Why big argument. Use? It was. It's sex negative. It's, it's like really the bot is sex negative. It's not that like it didn't know the calculation. No, I thought I was being lewd. What's the answer? I you know I it wouldn't <laughs> tell me. Like I tried so like I you know I tried a lot of different ways. It's smart enough to know when you're. Messing with trying it. to trick it too. So we'll, it, we'll we'll Google that and fill that canyon in two seconds. I'll let you know tonight <laughs> how much. Anyway, go go ahead. And also oh. how long it would take. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> relevant. Relative. You had you had uh, dabbled around the idea of a simulated universe and asked for um, clues on how we would tell. Um, does it uh, entertain the idea that it might be simulated, or it just doesn't go that far to to answer whether we're in a simulated reality or not? Yeah, I asked it. <laughs> so it's a funny conversation. And do you think we are? I asked it last night. What do you think the probabilities are that we exist in a simulated universe? And Chat GPT thinks those probabilities are incredibly low. And then I asked, well, what about Bostrom's theory on whether or not we're in a simulated universe? Everybody knows that. I think it's Elon Musk in some interview talking about how he thinks there's a higher probability that we're in a simulated universe than not. And this is, you can come to this through some kind of interesting yeah. quantification of um, what we've already done technologically and like the uh, extrapolate from that the possibility of there being other life. Any surviving uh, intelligent uh, community from a planet, it is much more likely that you're enduring if you're in a simulation. So that was mm -hmm. the basis, I think. Of yeah, why something said, like yeah. that. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. That's it. I forgot that angle. That's yeah. the most brilliant angle of right. it all. It's the duration of existence. It, this is, uh, Thomas Merton said that, you know, when people talk to him, Thomas Merton, you know Thomas Merton, who yeah. that is a famous Christian um, author who was, was uh, 
would go to other cultures and try to find uh, parallels between Christianity and Hinduism. And he's just a brilliant person. But he said I, in one of his books, people say to me, look at all the horror in the world. How can you say there's a God when there's this much horror in the world? And he said, to me, the fact that the world still exists in spite of all this horror shows me that there's a God. And that fits into the Bostrom simulation idea, which is like, come on, this shit couldn't really last. Like if the forces of chaos and um, human malevolence and yeah, we would greed. seek to exist it's either we exist or we don't we're either imploding <clears throat> or traveling you know externally if it was the horror that, that drove everything we would implode and cease to exist the right. fact that we are and that will elance us we're probably because we're a simulation so, you know but yeah i think that's the point Jeremy, you guys are friends. Have you seen him perform on stage as a stand-up comic? I can't speak of specifics, but yes, I have. And everybody's in for a treat. Thank you. That's uh, all I got to say. Oh, I, I would just like to point out that I flew into the jaws of death today to get here. It was uh, the mm -hmm. first ever blizzard warning yep. in Southern California. Blizzard warning in LA. And it was a little bit of a bumpy ride. It's exactly what got seven people who don't drive a Jeep in trouble. Their cars, stuck in all this water, was made the mistake of thinking they could drive through a flooded roadway. We're going to have to tell Duncan we put our lives on the line to have this podcast. But it was worth it to get here to see Duncan. Oh, man, it's and like it, he owes you something. Well, I'm flying back into the same blizzard that it will be in Las Vegas waiting for me. Mm. And I am told that Duncan is coming to Las Vegas to perform, mm. but Duncan did not tell us. No, wait a me. second. He can't be performing in Vegas without telling you. I, I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know he lived in Vegas. <laughs> no, my, I pictured you living like on a mountain. I mean, it's ridiculous. Mountaintop, wind chimes. Some kind of like, I don't know, pagoda or something. That's pretty close. I do live on a mountain and there are chimes. Okay. Pagoda, no. Uh, yeah, it's, I get cats if that counts. I'll, I'll tell cats you that. are living pagodas. I'll, I'll, uh, say, I'll say this much. So I, I saw Duncan and Austin perform a recent uh, act and I thought it was one thing and it became something else. <laughs> and I wouldn't say it wasn't demonic. It was amazing. You know, I get like you forget like when you're in Texas, you I I know that obviously I know what you're talking about, but it's like yeah, like you like you know, you live in LA long enough and like you forget that some people like take certain occult things that you might be on stage kicking around in a, in a fun way. They take it real seriously. Well, not that I took it seriously. I just thought it was an amazing twist. What are you guys talking about? His, his, when he did his uh, act that I recently saw. You can talk about it because I don't really do it on stage anymore, so it's not going to ruin it. And if well, you should talk about it, but it just, well, okay. So one of the parts of what he talked about is, I can talk about it? Sure. So, so he, had, he had this like uh, really creepy kind of, puppet doll mannequin like a professional little hobo like you know how you do the ventriloquism that kind of thing so there he is i'm thinking why has he got this little guy on his lap right and he's doing this funny thing and he's talking and and he's obviously doing the guy's voice because he's not a ventriloquist right so well, he is pretty good but you can tell 
I'm don't terrible, care. but you're, you're very sweet. No, no, but that was I'm kind of not a ventriloquist. That was kind of the point, right? <laughs> so it's like funny. So he's doing it, and I'm like, oh, that's cool. I see him doing this thing, and he's making everybody laugh. And then all of a sudden, these dark lights come, and red, I think, and it was like, and the ventriloquist or the the actual uh, little entity body. What do you call it? A dummy? What do you call it? The entity body. It's way cooler <laughs> than entity body. What do you call it? Small things? wooden it's entity. A, yeah. Small wooden a entity. What do you call it? It's a puppet. A puppet. So you got some fucking puppet <laughs> starts, um, you know, like arguing or something with Duncan is how I remember it. And then all of a sudden he's yelling or singing. And then this guy's yelling or singing the puppet. And then all of a sudden they start singing together or yelling together. And you realize he's not controlling the voice of this. Like, so this thing had its own voice. It was un, it was shocking. I don't want people to hear this. If you ever do it it's again, rogue AI is what it happened. <laughs> rogue AI. Rogue AI yeah. It was freaky deaky. <laughs> it's fun. It's a, I love doing it. It's just like, uh, the problem with it is the amount of time it takes. And when you're, you know, out in the road and stuff, I, I would need to work on new material, not do like my old crusty satanic puppet act. You know? But it was a satanic puppet act. So he's trying to play like I was like thinking it was demonic. No, dude, he made me creeped out. It is it. a satanic puppet act. It is. And then it also, it shocked me because I didn't, I didn't expect that. The unexpected, that's what the thing with Duncan sometimes, I have no idea what he's thinking or what he's going to talk about next. Speaking of that. Something that you've been seeding me. I feel like you've been seeding me with articles recently. And every time you seed me with some article from NASA or the web telescope, yeah. you're always being like, pay attention. Those red dots are galaxies. It's much bigger than you think. Do you have some like source at NASA? No, not at all. So you just like are paying attention. And well, I mean, the articles are coming out. The, the You know, there's uh, the problem is the James Webb Telescope is seeing things that aren't supposed to be there based on our current understanding of the age of the universe and and how in the world did some of these things evolve or appear as quickly as they did the red dots it's like a, you know they're picking up it's challenging our understanding of either uh, when the big bang happened or the way galaxies form okay hold on B break it down for me like i'm a four-year-old so I'm, you got a, you got a young kid right yeah okay so tell me what it is that you find so interesting or inspiring that you keep hitting me up with these articles about the age of the universe the big bang or what we're seeing in the james Webb. just really tell me the basics okay. First, go get daddy a scotch, huh? <laughs> <laughs> that's, how that's how it's done. Well, uh, yeah, right over there. Don't drink anymore. But, uh, you know, I, I think, and again, I'm, I'm a four-year-old when it comes to uh, cosmology or physics or anything like that. But, you know, you, you apparently, like, we know there was this event that we currently call the Big Bang, some kind of explosion that blasted superheated matter out that then as it cooled down began to coalesce that coalescence is what formed the planets and the stars uh and 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 that formation took an, an incredible amount of time for for that to happen and that is the universe the the theory is the big bang it is the universe yeah it, it's, it's expanding yeah. from this ex explosion and faster and faster yeah time space yeah exactly and so the, the idea was the james webb telescope i think was going to be able to peer back to whatever that event horizon was and there's things you expect to see there but what you don't expect to see is what could possibly be 
fully formed galaxies. That shouldn't be there. How could that be? How could it, that? How could a galaxy form in a fraction of the time that we think it takes for planets and galaxies to form? Anyone watching, please correct me on wherever I'm wrong here, because again, like I'm fascinated by this stuff. I don't want to mislead anybody. These articles, a quick Google search, you can find them. And, and it, I think it's worth noting that uh, I think some people are proposing it could just be uh, equipment error. It could just be, some, it's just picking up shit that, you know, that's so far away that we don't know what it is. So, but. Well, yeah, we're, we're spitballing. So it, it doesn't matter. Like we're not, it's yeah. not our job to be science communicators like Bill Nye or Neil deGrasse Tyson. It's our job to kind of think about this and, and talk about it or whatever. That's what we want to be doing. So what you're saying is what you're noticing is that there is, uh, there are more and more articles coming out specifically speaking about the James Webb telescope yeah. and expanding, if not rewriting, e either absorbing and extending or rewriting the physics and mathematics that we know based upon the Big Bang Theory. Is that that's, correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, it just might either. There's like a, a few, I think, broad possibilities. One, the way they're analyzing the data is incorrect or the data is incorrect. Two, the way our understanding of the way planets form and the amount of time that takes and the way galaxies form is incorrect. Or maybe the what we think the age of the universe is or, or when the Big Bang happened could be incorrect. Or, or the, the way light travels, the way we, the, the, the speed of light, the way we understand how light moves through time space could be incorrect. But definitely something, whether it's the telescope physics, whatever it is, something probably needs some revision based on what it's picking up. It's very exciting to, uh, it, it will be so spectacular to live in a time where a fundamental aspect of, of what we've been taught about how the universe formed changes. Yeah. Well, you had all these paradigm shifts that have happened before. You know, yeah. the, the march of science is like a lesson in humility for humans, yeah. how it, it teaches us over and over how little we know, you know. Yeah used to be the earth was the center of the universe and everything revolves around us. And that was a quite a change, you know, what happened. Then there's our solar system and then a galaxy and then a universe. Yeah. We don't know yet if it's finite or not. We can guess whether it's finite. And if it is finite, what's on the other side? You know, what if you go through the wall, what's on the other side yeah, there? Exactly. Other universes, we don't know. So it would be an, yet another lesson in humility if that telescope teaches us that our idea about the Big Bang is way off. It's like you guys' mutual friend, our mutual friend, Joe Rogan, who has Graham Hancock on, yeah. has these amazing bits and pieces of information about the age of civilizations here, how wrong uh, we humans are about something that's right here in our backyard and our, on our planet. Yeah. He has done such good work. Oh, my gosh. Graham. He, he gets eaten alive Graham by does. people. Yeah. yeah, he does. But... Yeah, I think that seems to be the trend. It seems to, it, it just keep. I think that's what Hancock occasionally will tweet anytime they discover some bone fragment that <laughs> sets humanity back another 50,000 years. He, you know, it just keeps getting older. I think that's what he said. Yeah, I mean, it, it's <laughs> at least he's not getting murdered for saying the, the, the earth is round, right? So, so that, that's a whole thing, right? Like we, for a long time, we're like, the earth is flat and, yeah. then, and people that said no look look at the way the sun moves the earth's round fucking murdered some of them yeah uh, am i right Impri about that? well definitely imprisoned i mean imprisoned. it was considered a heresy to right. to imply that the 
that the earth was revolving around the sun that the entire universe didn't orbit or like that the earth wasn't the center of the universe because well that the implication there is that we've got some kind of we don't have a a monogamous god who's solely fixated on our planet but now we've got a polyamorous god that could be making these fucking things all over the universe i mentioned about you guys as mutual friend joe rogan yeah. our mutual friend um, if you don't mind going into the conversation about your com comedic career, how, how important was he to you becoming com a comedian? Fundamental. And Fundamental. He does that. I'm sorry to cut you off. No, no, go ahead. I, I'd like to hear it. And then just the life of the comedian. Like I was kidding you about coming to Las Vegas and not telling us, but you honestly didn't know because you get booked at uh, shows. So tell us about how it evolved and what that life was sure. like. Well, I... I never, I didn't think I would be a comedian. Like I never, you know, meet some comedians. Like I always wanted to be a comedian. I loved comedy from, I mean, I can remember my dad had a Bill Cosby album. It's the yeah. first stand-up comedy <laughs> I ever heard. And like, I was so young, but I had managed to get the needle on the record and, and like get it to go and listening to that. And like no immune system for comedy. So just like, I, I couldn't breathe. I was laughing so hard and I, so I just love, I've always loved comedy and or like National Lampoon. I had a subscription when I was a kid. Eddie Murphy Raw, that kind of All thing. that stuff. The, yeah. How about Fireside Theater? Fireside Theater, I had an, uh, the Fireside Theater book, but I didn't get as into that as the other stuff, though I do know that's a beloved uh, comedy troupe. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like I, I've always, lo I always loved it. I didn't, I would memorize jokes. I would buy joke books and memorize the jokes and but i just wasn't born into a family that would be like even know would even come close to suggesting that that could be a, a career opportunity for me or anything it just seemed like i was a miscreant who liked to tell dirty jokes on the bus <laughs> that was uh, uh but um yeah i uh so i moved to la i ran out of money real quick had to get a job I got a job at the comedy store just because it, I thought, oh, that'll be fun to work at a comedy club. And then I'll go to grad school because like, I had a, I had graduated from college, came to L.A. Then all of a sudden I'm like the, what, the driving Mitzi around. I became what's called the runner, which was a terrifying job. Uh, and then I became the talent coordinator. All of it, I was just like, let's see what happens. You know, this is, it, it, but then somewhere along the way. Why was that a terrifying job to be the runner? Being around Mitzi. <laughs> it's like, she's like a, a, a son. Like she's like a living son. She's like a guru, you know, like just emanating this like energy, a, mo a comedy mogul. The, the comedy store is like such a fascinating place. And she was the the leader of that place and she, she deserved to be she loved comedians so much but you know by the time i was driving around the van i had thought to myself maybe i will try to be a comedian and you know you're just desperate for her to give you any sense and that she thinks you're funny at all which wow. if she knows that for some comedians that could be the very worst thing that ever happened to you because then you're going to stop <laughs> trying you're going to you know you what you oh, mitzi said i'm funny i'm done okay. <laughs> so that was one she like made comics the way people harvest opium wow. these little cuts and cuts <laughs> and cuts and then that would but yeah i just got lucky rogan was back 
in the back of the original room when I had what in those days was a rare good set because I was still learning how to do it. And I remember I got off stage and like he gave me a big hug. And he's like, that was really funny. Then a few months later, he's like, wanna, wanna come on the road with me? And I was not ready for this that. This is Joe Rogan saying this. Yeah, Joe Rogan. Rogan, yeah. He just like dragged me out into the deep water, Amazing. started taking me on the road with him. You know, and like he does that with a lot of comics. He yeah. does that and, and he mentors you, but not like, you know, not like he teaches you how to do comedy. It's more like he teaches you uh, how to not be an asshole out there. There's all these. What do you mean? Like, you know, I, I can I can remember like I, I was <laughs> opening for him. I just bombed. I was up there writing on stage. I was not like focused. And I remember I get off stage and he's like, you know, people, people get babysitters to come to these shows. Like to you, it might not seem like a big deal, but it's a big deal. This is a big night for a lot of people. They got babysitters, they're on dates. This means something to them. It's serious, it's real. And you need to think of it that way. Uh, this is real. And then, Be a professional, this isn't a side gig. Yeah. Ooh, the burn when he, you know, it hurt, but things like that. You remember things like that. But, he, but he's not saying you're a jackass. He's saying he's putting it in perspective of that people are doing that and you need to respect that. I take it seriously. Which is a big yeah. deal, a different way to say it than junk and you bombed, you're an asshole. Well, like, he knows, if you cool. bomb, you, he knows, he, you know it. He didn't need to remind me I bombed. <laughs> it's more, you know, it's more along the lines of, I, I think one of the ways that he like, yeah. when he's taking people out is he, he sort of, he knows a lot of the sand traps comedians can get into. One of them is you get stuck in your material or you get lazy or uh, you're diffused up there or something like that. And, you know, one of the cool things about him is he like he doesn't tiptoe around the truth. You know, yeah. he'll just tell you. But there's a benevolence there. It's not like an asshole yeah. trying to hurt your feelings. It's someone who thinks that you have uh, potential. And it's just trying to help you become better. That's what we need in all, for all friendships, you know? Do you feel that there's something, like I know as an audience member, uh, you know, when I watch a really good set, and I, you know, I know this mainly through you guys and when watching this thing, but I feel something, right? I feel like not only am I laughing, when I brought Commander Fravor to see Joe one time, I, I honestly thought I broke a rib. I laughed so fucking hard. And and with Lazar, it's the first time I ever saw like a real pro. I almost thought I broke a rib both times, but I felt something. I felt like not only am I laughing, but I felt like super connected that everybody was laughing at the same thing that usually you don't talk about. Yeah. But because it's being uh, shown in the in the form of humor, we all kind of bonded over the awkwardness of those things that, that at that time Joe was saying. Do you feel that there's something that you get as a performer when we all get on that same level and we are laughing with you at those things? Is there something like special about that? I can only yeah. fucking imagine, but I, I'm asking because I don't know. I've never done it. Tell me about it. I want to know what that is like. Well, you know, and again, I think it's a very subjective experience to be a performer. So I'm sure lots of comics would disagree about this, but you know, VR. So VR comes out and, you know, one of the things that they're kicking around the idea for is like, how did, could, could stand-up comedy work with VR? And 
the reason I don't think it could with the current technology we have is like, yeah, sure, you could like have people put on VR goggles and see you on stage, but all of these other aspects of what it really is would be left out, which is the room, the acoustics of the room. The interactive part of it. The interactive part, where the laughter is coming from, but also, and this is the woo-woo part, you've, if you tune in, you feel this energy that is not laughter. I don't know how to explain it. it. It's like a, you know, like when you push magnets together, that sense of like this like weird, it's an energy. Do you think that's focus? Some people say the word attention and I, I don't think that's right. Do you think it's focus? Like the fact that everybody's consciousness is focusing on a single, like the next beat of what is about to be said, or what do you think that magnet is? That Okay, it's Fritz Perls, this famous psychologist who was, I think, behind group therapy, came up with this term called the gestalt, which is the whole is greater than the sum, the sum of the, of the parts. parts right. So this other thing comes in. I don't know what it is. That thing, you're you're kind of working with that thing. Like and and in that you you and the audience have merged into that, whatever that is. Like you've sort of, if, you, if you're having a great set, if you're not having a great set, you will not feel that energy or you might feel it and then you feel it go away for some reason. So it's learning how to like, I think, I mean, it's the obvious stuff, which is you need to write really funny jokes right. and be able to deliver punchlines and have a real discipline around it. And and so, I, but there's other levels of it that are, you, you, I don't hear comics talk about that much, which which is the experience of whatever that is. This real, I don't know what it is. So when you're up there and you're having a great set, uh, you, I think you feel yourself go from being a, an individual to a collective. And that is a really glorious feeling. And I think the catharsis or whatever you want to call it that people get from a comedy show, I think is not just because they were laughing so hard, but also because they got to merge with a bunch of people they've never met in this fairly intimate way, vocalizing this bizarre sound humans have evolved the that we call laughter. So yeah. you said you don't know what it is, but you did name it saying gestalt, like whatever this guy said, the whole is greater than some of its parts. Do you, has that informed, so I know when I was training martial athletics, that informed the way that I do business, that informed the yeah. way I communicate. So ha, does this experience that you have when you do these performances, does it inform the way that you treat your son, your your wife, your your friends, your, does it move from the stage into your life, what you learn on stage? Or is that a fundamental or stupid question? I just, I'm curious. Well, I don't know. I mean, I look, I don't want to over-intellectualize it because I think comedy is is a, is such a present moment sort of thing that is so mysterious and part of what's beautiful about it is if anyone could like get handcuffs on it and control it and own it and know what it was you know they they would have they would have all the power in the world i mean it's a very slippery fish that is very difficult to, to that's always changing transforming you know it's like so much of stand-up comedy is rooted in the zeitgeist and the zeitgeist is a constantly shifting set of conditions that uh so you might have come up with some material that works 
in, in, in one cultural climate that when that climate shifts, it, it seems irrelevant and, and that's happening faster and faster now. So, you know, it's, there's so much to it that it all boils down to this kind of, I think, a, a, a present moment awareness on stage and it's sort of like trusting your intuition and being right there. Like one of the ways you know you're not having a good set is when you're thinking about the next thing you're going to say. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. very odd. And, and at least that's for me. Now, I, I guess I was just asking, did you learn anything from comedy that you've brought into your normal life that we can easily get a, access to and understand? Well, yeah, I'll tell you. One thing that I have uh, learned from comedy that I've brought into my normal life is, like, listening. Like there's some, there's real listening and, and awareness of like the awareness of the room, you know? And, and so with, when you're playing with your kids, uh, I, you know, this is something, this uh, Buddhist teacher I love, Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche said, the greatest gift you can give your kids is to be in the moment with them, to listen, you know? So, so I think applying that to like just spending time with my kids and, 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 sort of dropping whatever I'm going to do next and just being there with them creates a real connection with them that might not be there if I was like planning whatever I had to do for the rest of the day. I want to ask this before we move on to other stuff about your friend Rogan. You know, Jeremy and I watch uh, the stories that pop up about Joe and uh, we kind of laugh often. And sometimes we feel for Joe. I mean, he becomes a lightning rod for... Yeah. He is a comedian. He, he says funny stuff. He, he pokes and prods and presses buttons and is taken way too seriously by a lot of folks. Yeah. Do you feel for your friend Joe Rogan sometimes when he becomes a lightning rod and he's just getting trashed? Yeah, like when he's trending on Twitter. <laughs> every, every three or four days, you know? Uh, yeah, like when that shit started happening initially, I, of course... Like you don't want your friend to like suddenly become like the the like target of target. assassins, yeah, target or just the target of like you know you know how it's been you know I, I like we get these like this is who you're supposed to be mad at this week yeah. you know and then the, all these swarms descend on that person. God knows you don't want that to be your friend. So yeah. At first, I, it was like, it did make me feel bad. But then, like, after talking to him about it and realizing he's fine. Yeah. Like, he's he could take care of himself. He could take know, care yeah, of himself. Yeah. I was projecting. You realize, like, oh, right. I'm you just want to defend people that you love or care about, but you realize sometimes oh, they don't need defense in this situation. Right? Yeah, because you're projecting your yourself onto them. And you're thinking, my God, if that happened to me, to me I, I, I don't know what the fuck yeah. I would do. Uh, but, yeah, I, yeah, I think... Um, yeah, I think he he did. Uh, a, he was so brave, and he's not a politician. I think that's what's so great about him is it would be very easy to shift whatever the thing you are philosophizing or thinking about or contemplating. You, it would be very easy to not say that to your audience because it doesn't match what you're supposed to be saying, and it, and it might be from a lot of people's perspective the smart thing to do. From the you know from a business perspective, but I think that's one of the cool things about him is he's not a politician. He's just freely himself. Also, not a doctor, and he will tell people he's not a doctor, and then he'll say something, and people take it very seriously. And uh, same thing with uh, he's not a lawmaker. He doesn't write legislation. 
And they'll tell people, I'm a comedian. Don't yeah. take this literally. And um, and yet people do and just rake them over the coals over it. Yeah. And, and that it's, it's really a curious... Uh, it's a curious thing. I think this has been the plight of comedians for a very long time is like you, you need to find someone to blame this shit on. And so I think historically that was like the court jester or whatever was probably always subject to ridicule and attack. And, you know, I guess that's the archetype here. I don't know like what happened where people started taking comedians seriously. It's like a disaster for all involved because not that you shouldn't take any of us seriously we're human beings or whatever but it's like come on like if you're if you're looking for like uh someone to get mad at about misinformation or, or uh someone to get pissed off about for articulating something that doesn't match whatever the exponentially shifting ideas in the world are then like go after there's so many people who are like making medicine there's pe you know what i mean there's people who are like making weapons and uh, robot dogs and <laughs> you know what i mean people who are out there in the world really fixated on creating things that really might not be good for humanity clearly a grenade isn't good for humanity you know yeah. good for a nation yeah so, to your point attack them i'm just saying there's better choices of people to attack right than than like well any ideas that are attacked to begin with like that that's interesting to me we were talking earlier about the the heresy you know that you were seeing uh in our past conversation well there's like a heresy against uh the scientific community even uh talking about or, or exploring the idea of what's right in front of us with this UFO thing. So I think it's mm. really dangerous when we try to weaponize uh, ideas to the point where you're you're going against people who are just asking questions, which is what I've seen a lot, you know, uh, on people we know and probably including yourself. When you do a sad or you talk about certain things on your podcast, the anger and the vitriol and the poison and the yeah. venom that spit your way just for even in a humorous way, which is basically medicine to talk about the shit we don't want to talk about. Yeah. You know, it, it's pretty amazing when we can't have free and open dialogue when the censors themselves are the audience. Yeah. It's not a government controlling what you can say. These are the listeners. This is us. This is humanity. These are your audience. That's yeah. fucking dangerous. Why don't you change the radio station? You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's so many different things you could tune into. Like, why are you like, you know, that I, I had this like really embarrassing moment where I'm like scrolling through Twitter. I'm like, man, Twitter fucking sucks. It's so negative. And then I realized I followed every one of those people. You know what I mean? That's not Twitter. That's me. Right. That's direct choices I made about who I want to follow. Right. And and it, it's not the fault of Twitter. So I think, you know, if, if, Whenever I find myself getting particularly perturbed or upset by whatever the particular data stream I'm uh, fixated on, I just unfixate. I don't try to attack the that particular whatever it is. Just don't look at it anymore. Don't give the gift of your attention. 
Like you want to talk about something bizarre in the universe, human attention. What the fuck? <laughs> Clearly it has a value. I mean, look at everywhere you go. There's, there's billboards and the amount of money that gets put in the advertising campaigns and logos everywhere. These are solar panels for the human attention, gathering it up. So don't give yours to someone who you are getting angry at or upset at because all you're doing is fueling that thing like the, the the and i'm not saying cancel them or get or, or get them deplatformed no no that just that will do nothing just shift your beautiful incredible human attention away from that don't give that to them anymore find something to fit to focus on that makes you happy on your twitter feed uh, on the way here this morning i looked at it it was a it was one that came out in october but it's back at the top and it's uh, you're advising people don't attach balloons to their children and yeah. let them. you are way ahead of the world of what Jeremy and I called balloon palooza. So yep. yeah, I you know when I I don't want to get too into it because it's it's still it, it really upsets me. But yeah, we uh you know, it's one of those things parents get a bunch of balloons at the grocery store. It's funny to tie them to your kid. <laughs> and uh, we tied a bunch of kids' uh, balloons to uh, Sheridan, my one of. <laughs> and, um, How many know, years ago was this? Oh my God! How old would he be now? He'd be what twenty now? God, now he'd probably be thir thirty. <laughs> yeah, young father back then. I made oh. a lot of mistakes, but we just wanted him to experience like Light. weightlessness, yeah. and we didn't do the the math right. And yeah, it's just like gone. Yeah. Just drifted out to sea. And well, it's uh, happened to all of us. Don't worry. Are you it, that the U.S. Air Force shot down your son and he still was flying? I didn't yeah. think it was Sheraton, <laughs> but every year, uh, you know, hundreds of babies do drift. And uh, I, I would not be surprised if that was one of them. And I would obviously that would explain why they were so ambiguous about what it was because oh, they don't want to say they we didn't find the wreckage there you go because what yeah. are you going to say we shot a baby tied to grocery store balloons <laughs> down with an f-22 can't say that can't, can't say, say that. that can't say that Jared would have run out by a food by now on that balloon trip no eat seagulls could eat seagulls i mean look Obviously, like, I know it's ridiculous. I have been in therapy. I still believe that, you know, maybe he's out there somewhere. Yeah. Like, Sheridan, if, if you are watching this, yeah. please reach out to me. I'm so sorry. <laughs> but, um, you know, we got to learn to let go. Yeah. That's the thing. We got to learn to let balloon? go. No. Oh. Don't tie your kids. Please. Oh. Don't tie your kids to balloons. Don't do it. It's, it, yes, it's funny. Yes, if you get the uh, weight right and it's, they like it. But, uh, you know, one extra balloon, that's it. That's all it takes. One extra balloon and they're gone. You, uh, you are a consumer of news. You keep up with balloon news, for yeah, example. These stories about what was shot down, give us your take on that. I mean, we've talked about it on the broadcast before, but um, mm -hmm. really an interesting reaction from media, from the public, yeah. the White House. I mean, I think it was one of the most frustrating things I've ever seen in my life like the all of a sudden we got this balloon drifting across the country it's a political issue people on the right are like shoot that thing down right now uh but i 
people in, you know, people in conspiracy circles are like, that's an EMP or, you know, that could easily be smallpox or so from that perspective, do you really want to shoot it down? You don't know what's in there. What if it like you shoot it down and it contaminates what whatever's underneath it? I didn't even I didn't even think about that. Right. The idea that it could be aggressive in some way. But we've had these balloons for 40 plus years going over reconnaissance balloons. But I see your point. What if there's a biological in there? I mean, I, you know. I don't agree with a lot of things Biden does, but if it was, if it was up to me, I don't want to like be the one to squeeze the trigger on a balloon, shoot down and find out it was filled with some kind of awful genetically engineered bioweapon or God knows what. So let it get over the ocean, shoot it down. But th that, so that whole thing just seemed dumb and, uh, and, and annoying and, and also creepy because, you know, the, the, the people kicking around, that's a fucking EMP, baby. They're going to do an electromagnetic pulse. What a brilliant way to get through. It's like you're going to drift into right over the, the center of the United States and just wipe out the power grid. I got to start. I have to stop going on Reddit conspiracy because I get yeah. sucked in so deep. But it wasn't that, apparently. To me, what was annoying was after that, all of a sudden, these things are getting shot down because they reconfigured the NORAD satellite or whatever to pick up on smaller objects, I'm guessing. But what bothered me was the language. Like, you know what it is. Why aren't you saying exactly what it is? Where's the picture of it? You must have a picture of it. Why of are you? They do. Yeah. So there, but this whole like it's an object. It's an object. Well, it's some kind of object. Literally, like, is there an anything unknown object? An unknown oh. object. An unknown yeah. flying object, yeah. which right. also means UFO. I mean, yeah. so, without getting too conspiratorial, but getting way conspiratorial. Yeah. What the fuck was up with that? I mean, the language they used to try to mystify what it was. Yes. That was intentional. Yeah. And that was repeated. So like you wonder why were they doing that? Why were they trying to play catch and release with the UFO thing? Do you have a theory why? Yeah, my theory is really boring though cuz like I like I love the idea that it's some kind of like a you know, a lot of people are saying and I don't know that I really buy into this. Anytime some weird shit happens, they're like, that's a distraction from this. So the one of the one of the ideas is it's a distraction from the East Palestine disaster mm -hmm. the other one was it's a distraction because apparently there was a reporter put out a very detailed story about how we blew up nord stream 2 an act of war so it's a distraction from that that was one of the, the ideas but i think the real reason is because we shot down the what was it called the idaho balloon brigade <laughs> like these kids like to put up weather balloons for fun and we use an f-22 with a five hundred thousand dollar missile to shoot down these kids two of them, two of them. Two. Two of them. so it's like how do you say that in a way that doesn't make you look like an asshole you know you you already say let... well we're not sure what it was we're not sure what it was shaped like it was weird it knocked Knock out it. our communications well, yeah we couldn't find it you couldn't find it because you shot down some kids weather balloon project blew it up with a with a, a very powerful missile you're not gonna find scraps of latex right. or I, I think there is a positive development and that was the scene of the white house press corps not exactly into ufos and not known for pressing uh, uh tough questions asking hey where the hell is the the gun camera video you know yeah. it exists why don't you release uh yeah. this video of these encounters and, and shooting them down welcome to our world asking for 
videos from the Pentagon, right. which should be released. It's not a threat to national security. Um, I think it opened a lot of eyes among those reporters who have not taken this stuff seriously before. Sure. Well, a lot of times we are providing videos to the Pentagon, but we are specifically asking them to release the Mosul or video. Just because it was contained within a classified briefing does not mean that the public can't see that video. That's what you're referencing, so our audience knows. Anyway. Wow. So I was glad to see the White House press corps asking some tough questions for once and gaining uh, at least a little bit of knowledge about what the UFO world has had to deal with for the Pentagon right. for 75 years. There you go. Right. I didn't even think of that angle. But yeah, if like they're that ambiguous, if they're that like frustrating in the description of shooting down a, a kid's science experiment, how much more so yeah. about technology that, uh, that 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 really is exotic? Exotic. And, uh, yeah. Let, let me tell you something. If a pilot, I, I've talked with many pilots about this, and you can ask any pilot, it's a fighter pilot, any warfighter. If you're going to fire upon something because you get the order, you're going to see it, you're going to know it, you're going to be able to make sure that you're hitting the right target. They have footage of sure. these balloons. We said there would be balloons from the beginning. So the idea that that is being directly held back to try to muddy the waters because maybe the reasons you said, maybe stranger reasons, that's fucked up. By, by, by all accounts, that's fucked up. They have video footage, they have imagery, they have all sorts of sensor data, and the pilots had visual or they wouldn't have fired upon them. Yeah, it's fucked up, man. I mean, no matter what it was, it, I don't think, I think we're so sick of how condescending they are. Like, Who's they? When you're when they're giving a when you when the oh, I can't remember her name the press secretary is you know using words like object unknown object it's an unknown object we don't know what it was but we can tell you for sure it's not extraterrestrial yeah it's it's just condescending it's like okay so I guess you want us to just ex accept that like you you just want us to oh an object oh, of course we're just classic object you just shot down a classic object of unknown origin with an f-20 happens all the time oh uh yeah oh that's all it was I, that's the part that really rubs me the wrong way man is, is, it, is the condescending attitude when they're speaking for and to the american public yeah man it's like don't it's like it's like you know somebody feeding you like a microwave dinner and telling you it's steak it's really nice steak you know expecting us to just be like that's a really terrible analogy i don't even know if that works it's okay let's let's roll with it but, but macaroni <laughs> it's just you know I, I that's the part that's a little mind-numbing is it's like their manipulation of language to be as vague as possible but attached to that is a seeming prohibition on speculating about something you should definitely be speculating about the way that 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 speculation is taboo in some circles and how that gets you lumped in with an imaginary group of people that they've invented that they're, they're currently calling conspiracy theorists which is you know yeah sure obviously there's people who've been up too long and are writing weird shit online. Like, if you don't think that's out there, you're out of your mind. But also, there's just normal people who are curious. Yeah. And if you're going to, like, if you want to, like, throw a lighter into a big pool of gasoline, 
the way to do it is just is to not be completely clear and transparent because then everyone's going to project their own worst fears or their own weird theories onto uh, your smoke screen. Like the yeah. history of Area 51. So there you go. You have a base that people can see that the Russians photograph that you can climb up on a, a mountain and photograph and the government says it doesn't exist. Well, how do you think the public's going to react to that? We yeah. know it's there. What, what do you mean it doesn't exist? They get more curious about it. Exactly. You know? That's it. Just say what it is. Whatever. It's, it's, it's top. It's like, well, what do you think it is? Hippies, we're working on fucking teleportation. We're working on anti-grav. We can't tell everybody that we're doing the details because we're trying to create a competitive edge uh, against our enemies. But when you're so blank about it, it, all you're doing is inviting people to trespass. All you're doing is inviting people to try to hack your shit to get the information. And the distrust it, it creates, that's like something we're dealing with, is the overclassification of information yeah. in our world creates a sort of distrust with the American public for good reason. So, and that it's a corrosive, corruptive um, process that's been going on. If you're not honest with those you represent, then you're going to have a fucking problem. And, and, we're, and we're running into that specifically with our work, with what we're trying to do, get information out. So I think we can all relate that that is a, that is a fucked up thing when, when people are representing at us are, are not being honest. Well, I, I do understand yeah. that in any government that has to have a military, you obviously you can't give the de all the details out there but i yeah i just think that, that the the articulation of classified information or even a, a clear explanation of why you can't talk about it in a way that doesn't make people imagine that you think of us as children that you think of us as some kind of peasantry or something that couldn't handle the truth it, it was just an acknowledgement that like we are paying for your job and in 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 that you know that you respect us in the same way you respect other people in the political class i think that would do a lot for people like to me. earn back the public trust sure yeah, yeah it's just like come on you could be you you don't have to tell us everything but i have in a, fact we don't want to know everything i don't <laughs> yeah, yeah. i don't think i want to know everything you ever think about that you ever yeah i'd like I'd you like want to know I, you would like to know everything <laughs> i don't know there's some level of it where i get where i think well there's parts of it that are pretty disturbing somewhere along you dig you far enough water. you go somewhere you want some water you want some more water oh thank you yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I used to chill i'll give some more water um I think there are reasons at some level there's a small group of people that know some shit that's really disturbing you think yeah um yeah. Like, 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 like yeah 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 like I mean, it's I, uh you know there's a harvest of some kind that happens you know there's some there's some bad shit that a harvest there's some kind of a there's more than one answer to what's here and some of them are not good Right, right, right. Yeah, nothing new under the sun. It's not like this shit hasn't been written about for thousands of years. And, you well, know, to talk about people that have been working on this in the government at high levels. It's a very small group, and they're some of them are pretty much to, uh, the conclusion that 
maybe they shouldn't let the, all this shit out. They, they couldn't. There, there would be fucking problems. Well, I think there's some <laughs> compassion in there. I mean, I think, like, also understanding humans as a whole and understanding, yeah. like, how, how you need civilization. Yeah. Like, yeah. like what it would do to civilization. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, I'll tell you this, man. Uh, the other thing that those weird objects, what, what, when I was, like, looking at my emotional state and allowing myself to, even though, like, we talked, you know, like, it's not, don't fall for it. But, which That's I appreciate it. Yeah. You were, like, the first person I called. But, you know, in those moments where I, I started fantasizing, like, Jesus Christ, I mean, this is kind of the way every sci-fi alien invasion <laughs> movie starts. And oh, don't worry about it. No it was a, scary. Like, it, I, I realized, like, you know, in the when I was younger, and you would hear things about how, like, SETI or NASA or the governments of the world already have plans in place for how to handle an alien invasion. What do, we, what do we do if something shows up in the skies? How do we do that? Or what do we do if we find a planet that definitely has... There are protocols. There's that. protocols. Yes, yeah, there are. Because they know it's going to be incredibly disruptive to society because so many people are aligned with cultures, religions, that that additional information could like be the crack in the windshield. Yeah, there are bedrock beliefs that would be shaken by it. That, yeah. Oh, yeah. No question. The UN, there's a great documentary, I need to remember what it was, but it was about the UN protocols that they have for non-terrestrial engagement of humanity. So when, when Duncan for when you you FaceTime me about that, I was underneath my car fixing the, my fucking tire. Do you remember that? Yes. You FaceTime me, and I was like, I'm like, don't worry, it's not War of the Worlds. It's all going to be balloons. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But it was yeah, like I um, did call it. But it's, it should be obvious in a, in a way that that feeling that people did have, like, what is going on? Now the fact that you even have to ask that means they don't fucking trust what's going on to begin with. What is going on? I mean, how many times I had to say this is this is not going to be War of the Worlds, probably. It's all good, right? Check this out. So I, I guess it's just interesting to me that the, the what is portrayed out to the world and what we know is not in sync. And that's really interesting. But these protocols right. we have, the protocols we have, if there are if there is contact, have you ever read uh, Childhood's End by Arthur C. Clarke? No. Have you heard yes, of Childhood's heard. End? Yes. So if I get this right, there were craft that came and hovered over planet Earth in strategic locations for generations. Oh, wow. And that was just to acclimate people to the non-humans that had come. And Arthur C. Clarke, this incredible character, you know, predicted the internet, all that stuff. Yeah. But it's just a cool book that the aliens, they had a problem. They looked like demons, like devils, <laughs> red with pointed tails. Oh, shit. I've shown you some documents before. So NASA has protocols for what would happen if astronauts, for example, uh, come into contact with extraterrestrial life, how they would come back, the, the steps that had to be taken to prevent uh, contamination of the planet. United Nations does have a, a series of protocols if intelligent life is detected, how the announcement would be made. Those are real. They've been around for 50 years. We've never implemented them. And I'm not sure that they would stick to uh, the rules uh, if it even happened. I suspect if our government is the one that made the decision or the discovery that we'd keep it secret for a hell of a long time, maybe forever. Do you think it's possible that uh, some sort of non-human intelligence is already walking amongst humanity? Well, I mean, 
Sure. Why not? I don't know. I would like to believe that. I go to the, I used to go to the raves. I mean, that was something that you would be, you would, people in, in that subculture definitely believe that. Uh, you mean like the Nords and the... No, no, I'm not saying specific. I'm just curious if like in your concept of the way that you've seen the world, if there is a sense that visitation... Okay, do you believe that UFOs are real? Yeah, of course. Physical machines coming from elsewhere? Well, I don't know what they are, but I definitely believe that 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 many of the things that people have reported seeing are currently not on wikipedia like or not or, or there is no explanation for them other than uh, an, an intelligence that derives either from a, a part of the earth that we don't have access to just everything you were saying uh extra temporal uh extra dimensional um, or maybe from here, like George has said before, maybe, you know, not even any of these, maybe just uh, some advanced civilization that has somehow evolved in a subcategory of being hidden here within, you know, planet Earth. Okay, I'll tell you a story. Yes, this please. is a cool story. I just found out about this. Ram Dass's guru, Neem Karoli Baba, incredible being. Uh, so many fascinating stories about him and i won't get into all of them but look up neem crowley baba you will it's a, a infinite rabbit hole but basically a saint you could say a saint in india and so um i'm oh, i'm so sorry i can't remember the name of this documentary just came out if you go to ramdas.org you can find it uh but it was about one of neem crowley baba's closest associates and it's such a good documentary because you get like a real taste of what kind of guru he was and it might it might if you have some uh guru paranoia which any logical rational person <laughs> definitely you should have yeah, guru paranoia because yeah. you can well, what is it uh mark twain said uh <laughs> religion is what happened when the first con man met the first fool oh you, know, oh, so you gotta be you know yeah. be smart don't just because somebody's wearing a blanket or, or whatever mean you need to kiss their feet but in my opinion this was the real item he was the real thing yeah one of the stories was uh he's standing at the base of this mountain uh with some of his uh associates I don't, we don't, I don't, they don't like to say followers, but disciples. I, I don't even like to say that. Just, everyone's in associate. love with him. He like, this was like a, the description of him is just like being around like a space heater that was just pure love. What and era? Like what? Years? 60s. In the 60s. Yeah, in the 60s. Yeah. And he just was like, you just, you couldn't, it was almost unbearable. It was almost unbearable because he loved you, but not in some cheesy like bullshit, like that, that, that fake positivity yoga smile thing but like in the pers from the sense that somehow he was capable of knowing everything about you including and this is what you heard but you haven't met this guy right oh well, i feel like i have you i mean feel like he, yeah, i feel like i like i i, I don't think that uh, he, a being needs to be embodied to have the experience or the darshan of, of that being necessarily but maybe that's for another podcast but yeah so he's talking about how in these mountains there were these rishis, I think was the name for it. Basically, these very old beings, like thousands of years old, that lived up there. And as he's talking about it, orbs just appear, like in all around orbs. These like floating orbs. And one of the people with him was like, "We, you know, we got to record this. We have to write it down. We have to like look at this." And he's like, 
what you want every you want people to think I can call orbs? <laughs> he just joked about it. You know, he, he was always like that, always like downplaying everything. Like it's it's nothing to do with me. It's it's the, there's these beings live up here. But anyway, I found that to be very interesting in the sense that orbs or these whatever these certain things are that show up, they that's a much discussed topic in like UFO forums and UFO communities. You're uh, suggesting that's more of a spiritual manifestation yeah. as opposed to mechanical, technological. That's right. And and I don't see, I mean, if we're going to like try to put every possible thing it is, use Ockram's boring ass razor and be like, it's probably uh, either equipment malfunction or experimental vehicles uh that's it's the odds of it being that over aliens it's infinitely more probable but why not add to it that these things i mean these have been talked about for ever in yeah. every culture they have different names but general generally the same kind of appearance let me ask about your journey because you you're a comic and entertainer and uh, you know you look at your website about your podcast and it's um, that the, you have some comics on there, yeah. But it's mainly about people who are disciples of Ram Dass, or it's about mindfulness. It's about meditation. Yes. Somewhere you had some kind of an epiphany or a moment um, that led you in that direction. Can can you share? Was it a medical health issue that led there? Or well, you, already in uh, you know, there's no easy answer to that, and and I, but I, I you know, and I think about it sometimes and there's no easy answer you know um i think that the world is a very mysterious beautiful place and i know for sure that there are things there are like secrets there are you know aspects of reality that some people are aware of that aren't shared in the cafeteria of public discourse for a variety of reasons. And I didn't get there by being privy to that information as I would suspect one, at least one of you has. I just got there by applying the as above, so below. And I know that the way it works in just general groups of friends is that we all have our little secrets that we don't tell other groups. So as above, so below, right? And, and, and if we're dealing with a spectrum of intelligence on the planet, which I think we, we have a, a wide spectrum of intelligence uh, from, <clears throat> I mean, I, I think you guys fall closer to the super smart side. I'm sometimes, I'm afraid. I'm we have pulled the shit out of people. We've uh, well, yeah. well, we pulled yeah, that one off. At least yeah, give me a break. <laughs> but you know what, I, I think that, that uh, more than likely, uh, we could expect there to be uh, secret societies. I mean, I think that has a lot of weight attached to it, but but groups of people who've made the decision that they're going to have conversations in private that aren't always sinister, but maybe benevolent in nature, that, that there's, there's salons or, or... The Invisible College is what some of them call it. Yeah. The Invisible College. And that... Uh, yeah, so I, I, you know, so it's like, so I think that over time you just 
using just the simple as above, so below. What have you experienced in your own life? Now extrapolate that out and, and expand it, make it bigger and bigger. And you'll get a lot of answers just from that. Are they going to be right? I don't know. But I'm just fascinated with that possibility. I'm excited about the possibility. I do think that it exists. Am I out there like searching for some mystery school or whatever? Or have I made any contact with anything like that? Absolutely not. I have not. But I do speculate that it exists. And I'm excited about just that fact. Were you on this road before you had a, a, a slap in the face about mortality? Yeah, I was always interested in this stuff. I was always in, you know, when I was a kid, my dad loved In Search Of. Do you remember In Search oh, Of? Yeah. Okay. Leonard Nimoy, yeah. the best. And yeah. I remember, it's one of my earliest memories, sitting down with my dad to watch In Search Of. And like that, I think it was Congos in the beginning, that, <laughs> that 70s music. And like at some point they show a, Chris, a, a skull. And that would scare the shit out of me as a kid. Like, I would be paralyzed just by looking at that skull. So I have always been interested in this stuff from, from as long as I can remember. And I, and I think the evolution of that has, like, taken me down a lot of different paths. But eventually, when you get older, it's like the, the frosting stuff, the aliens, the Illuminati, the, all that stuff. Even though it might be cool, you get to the point where, like, I can't be an angry drunk every single day i need to calm down i've got to actually like relax in the world and that's i think what led me to sort of like buddhism and ramdas it was very it wasn't very romantic it was more along the lines of like shit my mom died i had cancer i feel like shit a lot of the time i think i kind of hate myself i don't want to live my whole life like this this sucks this is not how i want to be and so then you know, I got just got lucky and stumbled upon Ram Dass's teachings, which led me to Buddhism, which led me to my meditation teacher. And now I think I'm maybe 4% less neurotic and I'm happy with that. I'll take 4%, man. He just died, you know, a year or so ago. And yeah. I didn't know him nearly as, I'd never met him and didn't read nor nearly as much as you, but I felt that loss. It just was. Oh, yeah. Heart person he was you know yeah that's you felt it a lot of people who never met him felt it and you should have felt it because it, it you know it, it it was a it's a big deal i mean he was the, the i think the a real like true spiritual leader in the best way possible just somebody who was inviting you to stop being at war with yourself and like that where you're at right now is just exactly where you need to be and a lot of people don't want to hear that. They want to always imagine there's a finish line or there's something around the corner. Right, right. We missed and out so much. He was so good and like being honest about his own life and not putting on airs of being this or that. And I think he was just the perfect teacher for the time we're in right now. So, uh, yeah, it was a, you know, it was a loss. I think he, I remember when I had these retreats, I would interview him. I would get to interview him. They would like, let me go to the retreats. He did, and do, really? Yeah. Yeah. I would get in like once... I was standing next to him right before we went on stage and he's in the wheelchair. It's Ramdas. I mean, this is like someone who's like Jesus. He <laughs> don't want to say that. You said yeah, it. no, but I mean, you know. Well, he, a holy man in a sense. Look, here's what's great about him. He just was really good at not letting you do that to him. Yeah. And I remember like looking down at him and he, you know, like he had 
the he beamed joy like he it was really you see the culmination of a lifetime of practice and honesty with oneself and i looked down and i'm like i'm nervous and he got this big smile and he goes me too <laughs> it was such a cool moment like he was always doing things like that you know like like sort of helping you get out of the very human desire to raise someone up on a pedestal. Yeah, we've never actually really talked about this, but a lot of my life in the athletics, right, the martial athletics, I also, you know, taught a form of uh, yoga for martial athletes. Yeah. And I traveled the globe. I would spin the globe, like not a metaphor. I'd spin the globe and wait where my finger dropped. And I, I'm going to go cool. find the martial art there, or I'm going to find That's the so spiritual cool. teacher there and see what's up. 99.9% of people that I met were fucking charlatans, yep. straight up. I mean, I went to like Pune, India, stayed at Osho's ashram. They fucking drugged me. I'm sure of it. Had to go to the hospital, all this shit. Jesus. Super fucking trippy. But I did, did you go to meet... Oregon with the Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. No, so this was this was after. So after I was I was a little bit after that phase. But it was, it's kidding. the same guy. It's the same guy. He's got this huge in 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 Pune, India. He has these huge temple with these pyramids, like black pyramids, straight out of the movie Beyond the Black Rainbow. Wow. It's fucking amazing. You have to go get like an HIV test just to enter. Which I thought that must be an old school rule. What's <laughs> going on here? I learned so much. They're like, take off your clothes underneath that like thing you have to wear. And I'm like, these guys are weird. I had a weird experience there. Oh, oh. Got really sick. That's where I came yeah, down. I, don't, you, I hope you're not brushing past the take off your clothes moment. Like, what, oh yeah, what happened after they? So the this? head, the head guru chick, right, who was running it, she eyeballed me from day one. Like, oh, this guy's not a believer or something. So I was wearing like I don't know my jeans or something. They told you to put on this robe to go like watch videos of this guru like on this big oh screen God. and shit. And she looks at me and she's like. You must not wear clothes under that. I'm like, why? Yeah. <laughs> like, all right. So, I mean, it was hilarious. That's and then kind of hot. That's why, but not, not for me. But like, you know, it was weird for me. So I was like, okay, cool. So anyway, the the point is, did you do? Did you take your clothes off? Oh did yeah, you yeah. Do I what they to, ordered you do underneath. Yeah, I just wore a robe. Right. She was but, cute then, right? Is that what you're saying? Cute? It was sinister. That's why I came okay. down with the valley fever thing, and I started hallucinating. Was in his like ashram that that dude's thing that i found out later i had this major illness but i was sure that they had poisoned me because when do you get 107 degree temperature like from the armpit you're seeing visions two days i was out hearing dead people like i was fucked up and i was sure that they had poisoned me turns out i got valley fever that's what was going on but they were holding my passport hostage to because they didn't want a dead Jesus dude Christ. anyway let me back up the the, the point of this story is I got to kind of engage with some of these these people, most charlatans, but people that that you know have big followings. Though I I did meet to I get I did get to meet your buddy one time, Ram Das. Cool. We have a common cool. friend, Justin Beretta from the Glitch. Okay, Mark. gotcha. Yeah, and he like did music with yeah. Ram Das's talk. Yeah. Man, Justin was a jujitsu student of mine. What is a good friend from back in college? He's exploded into being a musician with this thing called the Glitch, Glitch Mob. Mob. He's but, good. Yeah, but also did something with Ram Das. But uh, I had one experience where I met somebody where I had an actual experience that I can't account for. It was Baba Hari Das. Is that somebody? Yeah. That he had like a big, he's a guru guy, an Indian guy. Yeah. So I went to New York and I was teaching out there. It was jujitsu at the time. And this guy's coming through town. So I went to go see him. 
And it was this weird experience because I'm not like an innately spiritual person, like in the way that other people talk about it, right? So I'm sitting there and this guy's just like silent for like 40 minutes. I'm like, what the fuck is going on? So I started thinking all these things, bunch of things, right? He starts talking. I swear to God, it was like he was answering every single yeah. thing almost directly <laughs> that I was thinking. So then I go, oh, that's his trick. He sits there quiet, knows what everybody's going to think. Then he's just going to say it because we're all thinking the same thing. What is this fucking guy doing? Right? <laughs> so that's where I was at. Start to walk out. They're throwing like flower petals in front of this guy's feet. I'm like, I'm fucking out of here. So I beeline it to this elevator to escape the whole procession out. Yeah. Next thing I know, I turn around and he fucking walks right up to me and looks at me. Like stops <laughs> dead in his tracks. Yeah. Looks at me. And by the way, I was in the back. I wasn't like the guy in the front being like, what is this about? I was like hiding. Right? Comes right up to me looks me in the eyes and I don't remember exactly what he said, but it, but the look in his eye, I don't know if he even said anything. The look in his eyes was just like one of like absolute pain and sorrow as if all of these processions around him and all this stuff was just so terribly annoying to him that it was like, I am deeply misunderstood. Wow. That was the, the message that I got, but I just thought it was so weird because you know, this guy that I sit sit in silence with, and this is not my style, if you know me, especially at this time, but I went anyway. And then for him to say all these things exactly that were on my mind, I was kind of like, that's weird. And then when he came up to me to have that like strange, immediate thing where I could see this look on his a, a pain that he was being followed this much, you know, I, maybe I was completely wrong, but it was a very profound experience for me. It taught me that day whether or not he was teaching it. It taught me that day that every single being, every single person has a greatest potential. And we're never going to make, we're never going to make to our greatest potential. But if we can make it most of the way, mm. then that would be cool, wouldn't it? Well, yeah, sure. I mean, this is the like great paradox of it all is like the, the idea. I mean, this is really quite... <laughs> This is really bad news for a lot of people, which is you're at your greatest potential, that that you, just where you're at right now, this is it, and that the dream of the greatest potential is a form of self-crucifixion. You build this idea of what you could be, then you nail yourself to it. We live in a goal-oriented time where everyone is in a self-improvement project, which is fine. It's not to say, you know, you shouldn't like try to live a healthier life or anything like that, but usually what the fuel people are using to get themselves to that healthy life is shame, guilt, <laughs> self-hate. And, and, and that is a really terrible fuel to use. It's, and it seems like, how do you expect to get to a place where you're gonna love yourself by hating yourself all the way there? So the, the, you know, that's sort of the, the what I love about, about it is it, it's really like, you know, uh, Pima Chodron, you get into her much? Pima Chodron, you would love her. She's great. She was a student of Chogyam Champa Rinpoche. And, and, and like when she was talking about meditation, she says, you know, a lot of people start meditating because they want to be different than the way they are. And that's starting your spiritual practice with hostility towards yourself. You're starting on the path by like being so unhappy with where you are and thinking, oh, up, up the way right around that bend right by the black pyramid where i was pegged in india by a woman in a cult and given valley fever 
That's a given value. That's where I'm going to be better. There were good moments. Or when the UFOs come, right. or when the singularity happens, or when all this, there's this dream that right around the corner, this suffering everyone's experiencing, it's going to end and then everything will be better. And, and the general the general teaching seems to be actually no that is not the remedy the remedy is not constantly trying to get to the next place but being just where you are and finding a way to stop trying to escape from that part of yourself that you what we all pour booze on it's the part of yourself you pour booze on it's the part of yourself that you 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 it keeps you awake at night it's the part of yourself that you God, it's it's the shadow, that fucking thing, man. It's the part of yourself that makes you ferociously and diligently masturbate to porn <laughs> at 3 a.m. If you're me. Like, That's being in the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Being in the moment, mindfulness, you cover that stuff in your podcast. It's not normal fare for a comedian, but... I mean, you do you do it really well, and Thank it you. seems like the idea is you want to. Maybe you don't want to educate, but you want to share this with people who are open to the idea and need it. I mean, you know what? I, my intent there, God, I'd love to say that I was like, God, I want to be altruistic like that. My, uh, I love these conversations. Like the conversation we're having right now, this will fuel me for like weeks. I'll think about it. I'll think about stuff you said. I'll think about stuff you said. I'll kick it around in my head. I'll write about it. It just, I just love it. And so that is what I'm up to. And I love that people, that I get to share those conversations with people. I mean, that does make me happy when I hear, when I get contacted by people who, who tell me this conversation or that conversation helped them. But yeah, I, my, in, my intent behind it is just joy. I just love talking to these people. I love like just what you're talking about, those moments where you encounter someone who has lived a divergent lifestyle. If a uh, normal lifestyle is like nine to five job, career, you're with someone who is like their entire lives focused on what it is to be a human and consciousness and sentience and God. And, and, and when you get around a person like that, it shows you who you are. Yes. I would say, I would wonder when you were saying that, I would wonder like. If that was I, my experience yeah. and I, he was a mirror to me. Yeah. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, he was mirroring you because that's one of the things they say is when you get around a being like that, they don't really have this, uh, the identity that like a, a lot of people have. There's not really an identity there in the normal sense and so they are mirrors they're energetic mirrors so when you get around them what's happening is you're seeing yourself you're seeing where you're at right now through them and and that that can be a really painful experience or a really wonderful experience or a mix do you think that um beings that you encounter uh under say dmt or psilocybin there are a lot of conversations that are published that people come back and relate their experiences, that those are actual beings, or it's something that you create in your head, that there's something out there that you can contact uh, by hitting some other level with substances yeah. or whatever. Okay, I just had Andrew Gallimore on my podcast. If you're into psychedelics, he's a great Twitter follow, and he's written a wonderful book on the 
neurochemistry of these psychedelics. And so in this podcast, he was telling me that uh, he had, and they, they actually, I think they did it at Oxford, they did this study. I could be wrong about the college, but basically he realized that using what we already understand about anesthesia, measuring the amount of um, <clears throat> chemicals in, in the human bloodstream to keep them at the level you need them at to like put people under, he wondered what happens if we apply that to DMT? What happens if we put the amount of DMT it takes to do the breakthrough state in somebody and keep it there for longer than the six, 10 minute blast off experience you get where you make, where you commune with these beings? Uh, there could be a lot of scientific benefit to not just understanding DMT, but exploring uh, that universe. Like, for example, what's interesting about DMT and a few other psychedelics is the similarity between experiences versus like other psychedelics that seem to be more of a projection of, I don't know, consciousness onto the world or something like that, a distortion of consciousness. You know, DMT, everyone sees the same weird circusy, uh, organic, hyper-technological uh, architecture in there, a kind of weird language. And of course, the machine elves, as Terrence McKenna described them, and all the, the whatever those are. So they've done the study already. It's I don't think it's been released yet where they put people, like, I don't want to say put them under, put them over, I guess, with DMT. But, you know, I don't know what you call it, put them, put them through and uh, uh, to, to find out what's going on there. But Gallimore said that if you look at the human brain when it is on DMT, you it's like watching a radio switch channels. It goes through a staticky, chaotic state, and then all of a sudden, it completely like shifts into a different modality of perception. And he said, regardless of the whether or not these beings are, are a product of the, the unconscious or whether they're extra dimensional beings that DMT is allowing you to see. What's really interesting about the fact that your brain is shifting into this new way of perceiving reality is that it implies that we evolved to do that. The amount of time it took to evolve our brains to instantaneously weave reality into what it is right now is already it's insane that we even did that but to think that we also built into us when we come into contact with dmt suddenly our brain like it knows how to do it just shifts gears and wow. changes the way it perceives reality what the fuck does that mean what is the evolutionary use of being able to see to that, to that stable mode, right? Because you're saying yeah. otherwise there would just be chaos because the brain hasn't evolved to be able to assimilate. But after they get through the static period, there's some sort of frequency, let's say, because you're using the radio terminology, yeah. where there is order. And so what you're saying That's is it. that the human brain must have evolved to the point where it could accept that moment and create order out of it. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, right. It's That's like, fucking it's like, weird. It's like, it's like, it's like, uh, I don't know. It's like finding like a completely different different operating system on your computer right. that runs completely different software. What? Why do it's we a have dark this? web of the brain? Yeah, DMT exactly. dark web. What, what is that? So yeah, you know, like it, it, I think that um, 
you know, I was talking to my meditation teacher, so cheesy to say that, David Nickturn, about, um, you know, in Tibetan Buddhism, there's there's deities that you visualize, and there's a, an entire pantheon of saints and beings, Buddhas. And, I, you know, I was asking him, like, but is, is it considered, are they considered to be real? And he's like, well, they're as real as you are. <laughs> How real are we? You know, some of these stories you hear uh, of people either on DMT or remote viewing, they project their consciousness out there one way or another, and they encounter some other intelligence. And sometimes the encounter is negative. Get the hell out of here. Who are you? Why are you here? Either you're not ready or you're yeah. intruding kind of a thing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, this is... Uh, If you read just any grimoire, any occult book, they what I love about them is they all start with a warning. Generally, there's a warning like, "Don't fuck with this. This is real." <laughs> like it, you know, don't this. And, and I don't know if that warning is there to protect people or to lure them in because people who open grimoires, that's like the most exciting thing. Like, oh shit, I'm not supposed to do this ritual or that ritual or, or whatever it may be. But um, you know, I think that. Ramdas famously, he he was he actually had a channeled being that he was friends with named Emmanuel, and Emmanuel said to him, "Just because something doesn't have a body doesn't mean you should trust it." <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think that's very important. And just because something can read your mind doesn't mean anything other than that. Like there seems to be an ability to like tell you what you're thinking that doesn't mean you should like bow down to them right. or anything so you know i think that that's one of the the problems of like our uh, what is uh, terence mckinnon calls it the pharmacological inquisition the fact that we have gone into the dark ages of psychedelics they completely banned them we don't know what they are because people are taking these things and they're meeting beings and the beings are telling them all kinds of shit and because the being is like very colorful or because the being is um, happening within the context of the psychedelic, they immediately believe it. They're like, oh, it told me the world's ending or, oh, it told me to go do this or go do that. It's like, you don't know who that was. Yeah, I always check the badge number and IDs of every being that enters my world. Because, <laughs> because, you know, I used to make fake IDs. I don't know if I can say that, but I did. You know, it was like you could make any ID you needed in LA. And so the, the thing is, is that that's that's something to do where we defer to authority or perceived authority and and we do that yeah. because of laziness we we constantly do that oh they said this so this is good this is what right. we should do i've always been um i don't know innately pugnacious like against uh you know combative against authority and stuff like that yeah not against but just i never take it for one second somebody shows me some qualification identification that that means shit but I think that it is within our nature to sometimes defer to authority. And if that's yeah. in a spiritual realm, if that's in yeah. a realm of taking a psychedelic where you're experiencing something, oh, that must be really profound and important because it felt like, well, let me tell you, my DMT experience, I fucking got in an argument every goddamn time with hmm. this intelligence, right? Say, I'm ancient and powerful. I go, I'm ancient and powerful. Same and one, I, same intelligence. No, you know, that's really subjective. It gets really weird. It's like a Cheshire cat that winked at me for a millisecond the first time I ever tried it. And then after there, 
it was an argument with the same entity. Again, all of this is in my mind. Who knows if there's any functional reality? Yeah. But my reaction, my, my older brothers, they're laughing at me because, uh, you know, he knows that I have a little problem with authority or whatever, you know? So he's like laughing, but it was like a constant thing. And I don't know if it's my, it might just be that my egotistical resistance to any kind of like superpower, but it, you know, some other entity telling me, but I would get in arguments with this thing each yeah. time being like, really show me you're right. ancient and powerful. Show me. Right. One time it did, but yeah, <laughs> it wowed me, you know, yeah. but, um, I don't know what that's about, man. All I know is there there's, has been value in my life in experiencing that, the very limited number of times that I have. Yeah. And not not encouraging it for anybody else. It's the only thing that I ever felt uh, possessed my consciousness and my body externally that came in and controlled my physical body. It was very bizarre for me. Yeah. But I did find value in the in having explored that. You know, and if I yeah. compared to not having explored it, yeah, I, you know, that right. I think it's uh, again we get so caught up in the reality of these beings. I certainly used to. Like, is it real? Is it not? What is this? Uh, and and then within that, you like you 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 can accidentally uh, miss the bigger picture, which which is that uh, our minds are filters. And they're filtering out a lot of data. And some of that data is really beautiful and poetic and inspirational. The Whether or not like we can one day like take these DMT elves and put them like in a government hearing, which would be fucking hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> you know, who, who, who knows? But, uh, you know, I think that uh, in, like enjoying those moments, but then not getting too caught up in them. I mean, this is... The, the idea in a lot of Eastern traditions is, oh, yeah, you can develop all kinds of powers, like cities is what they call them. Uh, you can turn yourself into a rainbow, walk through a wall, you can levitate, you can blah, 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 blah on and on and on. And that uh, in, in some like monastic communities, they, you're, you're told like whatever happens within the walls of the monastery, things you see, this is not to be shared outside of the monastery. But most importantly, don't get too caught up in developing these potentials because that's not really the point. The point isn't like making contact with this being or that being or this being. And what that. is the point? Well, the point is to find out if you can stop suffering. Because if you can stop suffering, then you can help other people not suffer. That's the point. The point is we live in a world where many, many people are miserable and they're suffering and they're suffering not because of the reasons they think. And so that creates confusion. They think they're suffering because uh, external phenomena isn't matching their ex their, their expectations. But why do, why do we need to... Why do we need to reduce suffering? I, I don't, I've never understood that about Buddhist tradition, about all this. The like, serious question is, yeah. why is that such the fixated point that like, oh, you got to stop suffering so you can help other people stop suffering? For me, suffering has brought me the greatest insight about my capabilities, my sure. life, my tolerance, my empathy. Sure. Why is it that we have to focus on not suffering? I've never understood okay, that. Okay, I love the question. I mean, and I'll try to answer it as best I can. I could be wrong. One distinction that's super important is the distinction between pain and suffering. 
So pain, there's nothing in, as far as I'm aware in Buddhism, like we're going to make you stop hurting. You have a body, your body is subject to old age, disease, and death. So it, there's not much there. That's, that's, the, the, that's Ativan. But uh, suffering in, in, in this sense is not like the pain of go, getting yourself to go jogging or the rejection you might experience as an artist or all those things. This is a deeper problem. And, and so in Buddhism, the first noble truth, as they call it, is there is suffering. Now, not life is suffering. This gets mistranslated. There is suffering. So the uh, dukkha is what it's, what it's called. Now, this translates into wobbly wheel, is at least, uh, right? So it, basically it's saying there's an experience of reality that most of us are having, which is akin to being on a wagon or a bike that doesn't have enough air in the tires. Everything here is wobbly. Things don't work out. You, things don't meet your expectations. You're going to get stuck in traffic. Things just really aren't working out. This is just the nature of reality that we're in right now. And so you, uh, this not working out depends for, for a, a sense that things aren't working out. You have to basically construct an identity that has built into it what you think working out is, what it looks like what it is so that sort of the the center of the problem here is that you have become attached to a self sense of oh this is me and that me is supposed to help you navigate this wobbly wheel and that you create the sense of self so that you can justify or navigate the fact that life doesn't work out the way you want to well no usually what you're doing is you're protecting this thing so you've you, you you've invented an imaginary friend this is you this is my name my social security number my career my job what, what's in my twitter bio or my tinder bio or whatever i like dogs i like to go to the beach i love music and i uh one day i'll have a ferrari and I'm going to retire. I want to get good at golf. It's, the list goes on and on for so many people. You know, this this thing, this thing, right? And the more you have within that, it's like you go out to eat with someone. And some people, like they're like, it's insane how specific they get. Don't, like, I only want three grains of salt. <laughs> the fish should be in the center of my plate. The more of those conditions you have in your own life for, for, happiness for you to like achieve happiness the more miserable you're going to be because those conditions will not be met so theoretically if we start removing those conditions um <clears throat> then maybe we'll begin to discover we don't really need that much to the the, the the this thing that we're experiencing that we call suffering uh is is not a permanent condition but one more based on a concept of the self that isn't accurate and so Gom is the name for meditation in Tibetan Buddhism. That means uh, becoming familiar with. So this is, let's figure out what the fuck we are to start off with. Like what's underneath all those things? That, that finally makes sense to me. So what I'm hearing from you, and it, it kind of finally makes sense to me, I don't think the message is alleviate your suffering. The message is by, alleviate, by alleviating your suffering, you can see more clearly 
what you are or what you can be or what you're becoming and all of the above. So yeah, because it's not about suffering. Then if what you're saying is that that's been my misinterpretation. Because all you guys ever say, are you fucking Buddhist guys or whatever you are, always say, "Oh, must alleviate suffering." I'm like, what's wrong with suffering? Yeah. Okay, but what you're saying is through doing that, that there is a clarity or purification of of what or who you really are or can or can become all of the above. Is that correct? Yeah, it's it's like this. This is not an add-on. This is not an add-on. So it's something that you already are. Which is, so you are fundamentally good. You're what every human being is is pretty much the same. Everyone's pretty much the same. You're me. I'm you. You're me. I'm you. But we get so caught up in that mask or the defense mechanisms, which are very refined and, and, and very hypnotic and very intense, that suddenly we find ourselves like <clears throat> engaged in this dramatic game of make-believe with identities that we've just invented. And so there's so much suffering there. All the wars are because of this. Like all the conflict in the world is completely related to I'm defending my shit from you. You're defending your shit from me. A lot of people carry a lot of guilt that they guilt that yeah. tortures them. Torturous guilt. You're so unhappy about decisions you made in the past <clears throat> and or, or, or where you think your life is going. It's like, okay, I guess the best way to describe it is this. And for all my like deep Buddhist people out there, anyone who's interested in this, I would recommend Inside LA, Dharma Moon, Ramdas.org, Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche, please take what I'm saying with a grain of fucking salt. I'm probably messing it up and I'm sorry. This is my own personal where I'm at right now with it. But okay, have you ever had an awful night where you fucked up? Maybe you got in a bad fight with your partner. You know, you just- Let fucked. me think. No, never. <laughs> what are you talking about? But okay, but you wake up in the morning and it's like before your your that app of how much you fucked up the night before loads into your consciousness, you wake up, it's the best day ever. Right. It is, you wake up and it's like, ah. And then it hits you. And then bam, it hits you. So that, ah, this is amazing. That's what you are. But you've added on to that, this story. And usually the story is not happy. It's a terrible story. and. <clears throat> and it and it and it goes on and on and on and on and on about who you are and why you're where you're at and usually it's because of the mistakes you made and blah blah blah, but it gets even deeper than that. I mean, we're talking about the way that you're interpreting language. Like you look at like letters, and your brain immediately will turn those into words. Like so, like there is theoretically something that is not touched by any of that. And in Buddhism, that very confusingly for a lot of people is called emptiness emptiness or I believe in the, the no soul. Uh, there's no soul. You don't have a soul. We don't have souls. And everyone's like, what the fuck you? I got a fucking soul. I got the most beautiful soul. I'm not saying it's motherfucker. But the, the point is, it's like, if we had souls, if you had an unchanging soul, if you had an eternal unchanging soul, you would be fucked. Because the best thing about life has changed like uh i was reading marcus aurelius or some stoic philosopher who said the universe loves change 
And so that's what that's what we are. We're uh, interdependent, ever changing, ever changing, non differentiated uh, reality. And we share a soul, if you want to say, even though there's no soul, we're, we share the emptiness. We're sharing it together. And so that emptiness is the root of compassion. It's like once you start tuning into that reality, once you experience that, which is considered sky mind or like, it's like uh, all of a sudden, like thinking that you have a shitty, tiny little filthy apartment and finding a secret door that opens up into this beautiful, massive, infinite, empty, clear space. And, and that's what you are. That's what you are. I will not keep rambling about Buddhism. God forgive me. I'm so sorry to all my Buddhist teachers out there and all the teachers. <laughs> the shame is coming in. I'm I'm so, no, no, but I mean, just what, what, you know, you're talking about growth. You're talking about growing and, and evolving. You're, you're talking about not pushing, right? Like you're good where you are, but you are talking about growing, about change. You're talking about being one thing, realizing another, right? That's a difference. That's a change. Okay. Tim, here's a famous Tim Leary quote. Oh, I love it. Go Lift up your legs and float downstream. That's the idea. Imagine being in a river. And it's actually in um, in kayaking that if you ever go canoeing or whitewater rafting, they're like, do not try to stand up in this water. It is moving so fast. Even if it doesn't seem like a lot of water, if you try to stand up, you're gonna, you're, you could get stuck on a rock. You're gonna fall. It's gonna push you over. You're gonna tumble. You've got a life jacket on, just lean back and let the river do what it does. Let it John care. Lennon line as well. 80 years ago today, on the day that we are recording this, George Harrison is born. Okay. He, he learned so much about spirituality, spent his, the, the last part of his life ascending and, and getting to understand this. When he died, uh, there's a, a Martin Scorsese documentary about his life that's terrific. And it's his family members talking about when he died, physically died, the room lit up and that something dramatic yeah. happened. Do you buy that? Oh do yeah. You, and do you, do you think that George Harrison comes back around or is he floating around and didn't leave or does he incarnate again or what do you think? Okay. So I was asking my meditation teacher like about Chogyam Trumpa, like, you, like, you know, this is a, a Rinpoche would meaning that it's a, they reincarnate, they keep coming back on purpose but to teach, to help end human suffering, spread the Dharma. But yeah, I asked him like, where is he now? And he said, well, Chogim Trumpa said, when you, when you die, the term for it is you're in the action, which is a really cool way of putting it. It's like Harrison, George Harrison still ripples the present moment if you any like you hear my sweet lord every, everywhere you go here at whole foods uh as far as like or all things must pass by the way yeah yeah, yeah. um yeah so i don't know i don't i don't really like i do believe in reincarnation i do i do think that like we probably uh come back around to get it right yeah, and I know that like a lot of people are thinking, well, well, if you don't have a soul, how do you reincarnate? I mean, I think that's a really good question. And and so generally it's considered a momentum. Like it's not really a soul as much as like a kind of karmic momentum that has a, a tendency to, uh, when the causes and conditions are right, to 
appear in the world. So you are a tendency, you're a momentum. And so when you die, that tendency or momentum, it uh, goes through this intermediary state called the bardo. And uh, depending on your projections, it sort of determines what your next life is going to be. So, but, you know, what in Greek mythology, the river Lethe, L-E-T-H-E, you drink from it and you forget everything you were before. It's wiped out completely. So it seems like our hard drives get formatted, formatted in between lives, but some essential nature, like an essential quality of, of, of which is the representation of your karmic predicament, it ripples into time and then it will find birth somehow. And that tendency actually determines what your next life will be. That's what they say. If you want to know what your next life is going to be, look at what your current life is and you can pretty much figure out where you're headed. Well, look, man, I've appreciated the conversation. Uh, I know that we're going to spend all night extending this conversation, yeah. but I think for the show, I just, you know, thank you so much. It's been cool. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. It's been so cool to kind of hear over this amount of time where your mind is at with these things. I always learn something new. I really appreciate it. And I'm really glad you guys get, got to finally meet up and talk on this. Oh, course. my God. Yeah. It's so yeah, cool. To talk get before. Every time I talk to Duncan... I swear to God, I'm going to start meditating and try to get into this. And, you know, you got to give me the pep talk after we get off the air here. I will I will give you the opposite of a pep <laughs> yeah, talk. Yeah. It's, you know, <laughs> one of my favorite books by Chogum Trumpa, it starts off saying, if you don't get it, if you can avoid getting into this stuff, don't get into it. Because once you start, once you get into the rabbit hole, it's, you're not coming out. Yeah. You're, you're all, you're, you have to go through. I'm good with that. Yeah. All right, cool. Yeah. Uh, well, it's no big deal. It's very easy. And let me, I'm sorry to be neurotic. Let me just reiterate something real yeah, quick. Yeah, no, please. In case I'm a fool, I'm a, <laughs> I, I, I don't have a, a like disciplined meditation practice. I meditate once or twice a week. And I'm not a, 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 a teacher of spirituality. Not that I seem like one. I don't want to like seem like I even think that, but I don't want to confuse anybody. So if some of the bullshit I was yapping about today appeals to you, please explore like some of the things I mentioned and 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 go deeper. Let, that let me put way. you at ease yeah. real quick. I don't yeah. want to confuse it. Yeah, we're yeah. Let, I'll put you at ease, man. Is this I've learned this from just training martial athletics and just from other things. There's always gonna be somebody that needs to hear it from you. There's always gonna be somebody that talks above you and somebody that talks below you. Right. But there's always gonna be somebody that talks your language. You never have to say that. All you're doing is communicating what you know at this time. Right. If they mistake that, okay, that's cool. their fault. Right. And there's gonna okay. be a number of people that need to. Right. I needed to understand it the way you said it. You were explaining to me because of my question. So thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having yeah. me. What a yeah. great show. It's a real honor to get to hang out with I'm a big fan. I'm trying not to quote fans. <laughs> I think it was Sheraton. But every year, uh, you know, hundreds of babies do never have so few, had so much to tell, but could say so little. Following this little weaponized the presentation of Jeremy Corbell, George Knapp, Dark Horse Entertainment, and Cadence 13 Studios. Available now for free on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your shows.